0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 65 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show-by-show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame, joined, as always, by the other half of Through the Years, the better half, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, the podcast is now retirement age. We're not going anywhere, but 65. You could listen to one episode every year you're alive and go from birth to retirement, and to anyone that is listening – let us know if you do that at the end of it, and uh, send an email to my uh, grave.
1: <laughs> you know, in the future you'll be able to email graves. Um, <laughs> so you said I was the better half, but I think you um, you meant to say bitter, because I am I am definitely the bitter half. I have a lot of bitterness, resentment. Um, but, yes,
0: you're definitely the grumpier one <laughs> here. Obviously, <laughs> well, yes, people I know in real life they would say yes. Um,
1: but yeah, you're uh, a
0: human ray of sunshine. Come on.
1: You uh, you listeners, you deep vein thrombozos, have a lot of reason to be bitter because uh, before we started recording, Trevor and I were rapping about, about Ring of Honor, about wrestling. We were doing raps and we decided that we would leave it off air so as not to get
0: canceled. <laughs> we definitely – I swear to God, we both did raps before the start of the show. Um, yo, baby, but, yo, baby, yo. All right. That's, that,
1: it. that's, that's all I'm going to do. That's all that's going to happen. <laughs>
0: We'll say that for the through the year uncensored DVD set where we show all the clips that never made the show. But, uh, yes. All, all the Jimmy, all the, all the Teddy Hart stuff that never made
1: the show. Yeah. The no, times when um, I,
0: I, like,
1: did backflips and threw up right in the middle of reviewing a, uh, John Walters match.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,. Now it's the time of the show where we usually plug our podcast feeds, which I will do. You should listen to us either on our normal through the year feed, which is just our show, or on the great pro wrestling only feed, which is a ton of great podcasts. They're just starting to get into the great, uh, greatest wrestlers ever 2026 project. So I'm sure over the next few years, you'll be seeing great podcasts related to that. I know when they did it 10 years ago, well, less than 10 years ago, but it'll be in 2016, there was great podcast around it then. Um, they, they'll, they'll, they, they'll
1: be releasing that right around the same time that we get to, um, uh, August, 2005, on through the years.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. The great companion piece. We'll be getting right to the end of the summer of punk, but, um, the thing we don't usually mention, I just thought I got a little reminder of it today, is Matt, oh, months ago you did uh, the hard work of uploading a ton of our old episodes to YouTube. And I see in our our uh, podcast email the other day, we got like an automated email from YouTube where almost everyone that listens to the show, listens to it through one of the podcast feeds. But there was – it was like here's your activity for the week or something. It was one person had listened to I think over 700 minutes of us on uh, YouTube. So to whoever that person is, I mean – uh, I'm glad it's there for you. I'm glad that, uh, you know, I uh, don't know whether to apologize or thank you for uh, listening to over 700 minutes of us in a relatively short span of time. But
1: Well, thank you and I'm sorry is the alternate name for this podcast. So <laughs> either one, both works. Thank you and I'm sorry um, to whoever did that. And uh, keep enjoying it. D- do, exactly. yeah, do it up on YouTube because uh, that, uh, you know, we could use the, the YouTube minutes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and any way you want to enjoy the show, as long as you enjoy it, that's that's fine with us. But uh, we actually have a little bit of news that happened in Ring of Honor between the last show and this one. A couple interesting things that I've been looking forward to saying. Um, for not huge things, but I think there'll be a couple good uh little. I don't know if we'll even get chuckles, but just enjoyable smiles out of these. Uh, the first is from the Pro Wrestling Torch. They wrote around this time. Gabe Sapolsky, besides booking and promoting Ring of Honor, also books the Full Impact Pro promotion out of Florida. FIP uses a lot of the same wrestlers, but Sapolsky takes a different approach with the style of booking. He has said that booking FIP, rather than spreading him thinner, actually helps him become a better booker for Ring of Honor. "Quote: When I book FIP, I have a different mind frame, so it's kind of like taking a vacation from Ring of Honor, and it refreshes me for the mind frame I have to be in to book Ring of Honor." Sapolsky tells the Torch. I also. Get to try out some things in FIP, and if they work, I can bring them to Ring of Honor, such as Jimmy Rave and Fast Eddie as a tag team, or Asriel having more singles matches, or Roderick Strong having high- more high-profile singles matches. I also get to use another creative side of myself when booking FIP that, turn, turn, that in turn opens up that creative side for Ring of Honor. I also get to see talented FIP like Vordell Walker that I would probably not have known about. Those are just a few of the advantages. So Matt... I thought this was funny just because <laughs> Gabe lists like four or five examples there of ways booking FIP has benefited Ring of Honor. Almost none of those things last at all. O- only, you know, one, only
1: one of them actually worked in Ring of Honor.
0: <laughs> exactly. Asriel's you know, push doesn't really go anywhere. Jimmy Rave and Fast Eddie, we've talked about recently where Jimmy Rave is on record as saying he hated tag teaming with Fast Eddie. Also, they um, also they
1: barely ever did it in Ring of Honor. I can, exactly. I can maybe think of like what one or two matches that they did together as a tag team. I don't even know.
0: Vordell Walker came in with a lot of hype, and it seemed like whatever planned push they had for him was almost immediately abandoned. Yep. Um, so yeah, other than the Roderick Strong, um, high profile singles matches, th- th- yeah, basically everything here doesn't really bear fruit in the long term or even the medium term.
1: Also, seeing those, uh, those FIP clips is just so uncannily reminiscent of pandemic era wrestling. I don't, I don't mean that to throw shade, it's just true the crowds do, uh, are extremely small.
0: We're at the point now in fact this show ends with a uh, an FIP ad where Ring of Honor was trying to plug and mention FIP more on uh their releases and uh you know part of me got curious about you know that stuff's harder to find but revisiting some of the FIP stuff because it is such a different promotion in the sense of where Ring of Honor was you know the super indie FIP was like this weird mix where it was like mostly local or or very uh, like uh, not net big not yet big name talent, but then there would always be like a handful of the super top tier Ring of Honor workers also sprinkled in on every show. So you'd get like weird things, you know, like you know it would be like Brian Danielson, Roderick Strong, and you know Homicide, and then it would be on the undercard like the Heartbreak Express and See, stuff I- like that. It's,
1: Sorry. See, I I didn't see that many FIP DVDs. I think maybe I got like one at the time, and I didn't realize it. It was like I knew there were some like you know lower name guys, but I still thought it was mostly ROH guys. Was am I am I wrong about that? It's usually just
0: a few. I actually kind of thought that too, but when I went went back and looked at the cards after reading that quote, I thought, well, what were the FIP cards like at this time? In fact, maybe I should just go to Cage Match and just take a random card from this time period and just see. Uh, what kind of cards they were putting out? Because I think that'd be interesting, actually, to see like how's it compared to you know, you know, obviously we follow Ring of Honor from this period, so we know exactly what kind of roster he had access to. But obviously, as you mentioned, Matt FIP for those who have never watched FIP drew a lot less than Ring of Honor, so you know, they're obviously, probably working on a much smaller scale budget. It's a, even it's, if it's it's a DVD product, exactly. Even yeah. even with the mindset of a DVD product, I mean, okay, so how about if I just pick randomly? I will do. FIP Heatstroke Night 1, that's from August. Um, opening match was the Ring Crew Express defeating Fast Eddie and Jimmy Rave in 10 minutes. Then you had Darrell Clark beating Azriel Jay Fury, and Roderick Strong in a four-way fray match. Um, you had Tony Mamaluke beating James Gibson in an 18-minute match. See, that's the kind of match where it's like, I'd be interested in seeing Tony Mamaluke and James Gibson wrestle for 18 minutes. Um, Sal Renaro beat Adam Pierce. Samoa Joe beat Spanky, Antonio Banks and Rain Man beat the Heartbreak Express, CM, CM Punk beat Ace Steel, and the main event was Homicide defending the FIP world title against Steve Madison.
1: So it's, so it's mostly ROH guys. Yeah. There are a few non-ROH guys in there and guys who would appear in ROH later, but it's, 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 it's very, very heavily tilted toward the guys that we see all the time.
0: Yeah, but it's weird, like, the matches you get, like, I'm looking at another show, you would get, like, CM Punk versus Sal Renaro, or the main event, and then the main event of that same show would be Double Duty, Colt Cabana and Sal Renaro versus CM Punk and Samoa Joe tagging together as the new Don. So, you know... You know that team. That, you know, I
1: heard that team's coming back. <laughs> Twitter seems to indicate something to something to that effect.
0: That, that, you know, with Punk and then Joe, that's clearly what we all want, is the new Dawn reunion, that, you know. That's right. New Dawn versus the Young Bucks. Well, that would be a good match. Well, um, New
1: Dawn versus uh, Colt Cabana and Sal Renaro. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Uh, Finally. Um, But next up on the news, we've been covering recently, and it'll come to a head pretty soon in the timeline, but obviously lots of rumors about CM Punk. But around this time about where CM Punk was going, you know, leaving Ring of Honor, but there was also a lot of rumors about uh, some other wrestlers, which I kind of forgot about which we'll get to. But first... Matt, this is a quote I've been sitting on for a while, and I think it's an amazing kind of little story here because I've never quite seen a quote from an anonymous source where they are like lightning perceptive in something that I wouldn't have predicted myself, and then the next second they say something that is completely like the worst wrong it could be. So let's see if you can pick it out. It's pretty obvious. This is also in the Pro Wrestling Torch. WWE management is high on CM Punk, and key figures in pro wrestling predict he'll end up being a WWE main eventer within a few years. Punk has been working WWE dark matches and heat matches recently. One friend predicts he'll end up tight with Triple H because, quote, the two are so similar in their passion for pro wrestling, unquote, and similar as people overall. Punk is considered a fervent student of the game, and since he's in his mid-20s, he can be a protege rather than a threat to Triple H, who is more than 10 years a senior. Punk also is smooth at presenting himself professionally behind the scenes. Uh, Punk wrote last week in reference to the frustration of his friends Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson, quote, "...lots of burnout going around these days." I'd be lying if I didn't feel so beat down for the last four months. We want it all, don't we, Joe? We want what's ours, don't we, Dragon? We need to remember we're still young. This belongs to us. Nobody can take it away. I'm tired. I'm sore. I'm heartbroken. Yet I'm still fixing to take over the world. Because it's mine, God damn it. Remember, kids, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm the strongest motherfucker on the planet. Keep marching. The question now is whether Punk will accept a WWE developmental contract or try to hold out for a regular contract considering his resume of strong performances in TNA, ROH, and the indie scene in recent years. In Ring of Honor, he was part of several Match of the Year candidates last year, exhibited highly praised mic work in his feuds with Ricky Steamboat and Samoa Joe, and showed a quick and sometimes biting sense of humor while doing color commentary on Ring of Honor video releases. So first, Matt, just I think that's amazing where... I've said this before. I was a big fan of CM Punk at this time, and I didn't think that CM Punk would ever make it in WWE. Like if he got signed, I I was open to the idea he'd get signed, but I thought the politics, his look, his, his sometimes his you know he'll speak his mind sometimes. I thought he would just never make it. So on one hand, when I first read that first quote from whoever that source was, I was like. You know, credit to that guy. He was 100% right. Punk did become a major star with WWE. But then the next line is like, oh, I think he'll be good friends with Triple H. It's like you went from incredibly perceptive to you missed the entire dartboard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I am. The funny thing is, so I think I, I I think I, did have higher expectations for Punk in WWE than you did. You know, Gabe was on TV saying and not on TV, on DVD saying, you know, CM Punk's going to be a WrestleMania main eventer one day. And I I bought it. You know, I think I just trusted Gabe, honestly, which, you know, I mean, whatever, but I but I think I did. And um I remember when I went to an ROH show in uh, in July of that year, and you know, Punk was already doing his like he's leaving with the title thing, and the crowd was chanting Sunday Night Heat at him. And I remember thinking, like, eh, I think, I think he'll do, I think he'll do better than that. I don't think I thought that he would be like iconic the way he became for that brief time that he was, but I think I had higher expectations than just that. But the other, the other funny thing about that Triple H thing is. You know, that's not the first time I'd heard and nor the last time I've heard. Well, I guess it is the last time literally in terms of like you're the, you're the only person I'm talking to right now. But um <laughs> the, you know that um that CM Punk and Triple H are very similar. You know, I don't know either of them. I can't say one way or the other, but I think that was a commonly held sentiment and um I think what that quote kind of underrated was just how um how territorial Triple H was at the time. You know, that like, yes, Punk was probably similar in some ways to him, but Triple H in the 2000s was very, very unwilling to give certain guys a spot and was very, very judgmental of people that came from a certain place. You know, which is funny because, you know, he's, I guess, in some ways become the champion of the indie guys, uh, or at least that's his, uh, public facing persona over the past, uh, what, I don't know, eight, seven or eight years. Um, so, but but yeah, no, that's obviously extremely funny um, to to hear it put that way.
0: And yeah, like going to what you said about you know. People would chant, you know, you on heat or stuff like, I believe, Matt, we were about – or about Punk also being compared to Triple H. I believe we were about to cover a show in just a few minutes where uh Prince Nana actually calls CM Punk the Triple H of Ring of Honor. So, yep. I mean, that was something that they even kind of played with. You know, it was enough of a perception among certain people that they would actually, you know, there were people would bring signs to the shows that said, like, CM Punk is Booker's pet, stuff like that. Punk, like, punk even did,
1: referenced it himself on the student interview with Samoa Joe.
0: Yeah, like, oh, I'm a – like he just said, sarcastic, like, I'm a belt mark and all this stuff, you know, like, yeah. I just wanted the belt and all that stuff. There, there, there was definitely a perception among some people that, you know, Punk had a lot of power and, you know, whatever. But um moving on, there was a couple other rumors, though, about other talents that maybe were going to WWE at this time. The torch continues. WWE management remains interested in former Ring of Honor champion Samoa Joe, but the main concern with him remains his physique. "Quote: If he lost a few pounds, he'd have a better chance of getting here," says one WWE source. WWE is also interested also interested in American Dragon Brian Danielson. Sources believe that WWE's interest will be stronger in signing available free agents if the TNA gets a national TV deal. But if TNA's deal seems to be faltering, they may hold out to save the money, since the wrestlers at that point would have. Nowhere else to sign for potentially lucrative deals. So,
1: if WWE had signed Samoa Joe, man, they would have just done wonders with him. Like they, they would never, and you know, and he, I think he'd be a lifer. You know, like he'd, he'd be there. He'd, be a, he'd end up being a <laughs> trainer. You know, they just, they would never mess up with Samoa Joe. They just, he's just, they, they would realize how amazing he is and never mess up with him.
0: For anyone that is uh, listening to this like a year or two in the future, we are recording this just a couple days after uh, Samoa Joe was released for WWE. So, yeah, the timing on this is just perfect. It's still, still, fa-
1: still fairly inexplicable as of the date of this recording, right?
0: It, yeah. I mean, c- could you imagine like also uh, this is going to come up in a future episode, but, uh, you know, about you know even TNA at this point was thinking about trying to make a last digit last ditch play to get CM Punk back. But could you imagine if WWE had hired Danielson, Punk, and Joe all at once at this moment, or even if TNA had hired you know even just Punk and Joe at the same time and brought them in together? Like, I mean, I obviously Ring of Honor. Like, they would survive without CM Punk because he's going to be gone in a few months. And Samoa Joe, while he'd be a major fixture in the company and have one huge match later in the year, he would never quite be the man in Ring of Honor ever again. But I think that would hurt. And Danielson obviously still has a major run to have. So, like, I don't know if Ring of Honor would die if a company just sucked all three guys up at the same time. But I definitely think it would have... It would have forced Gabe to probably make a drastically different product in some ways. I wonder who would have like. Does Nigel McGuinness get pushed to the top quicker? I I wonder how. Homicide, I
1: think, probably would would get more of a main event
0: run. Um,
1: You know, probably more from Jimmy Rave. Um, You know, guys like that. I think he probably we might maybe we would see. You know, him putting more faith in guys like Steen and Generico sooner and maybe even bringing in a Chris Hero sooner. You know, there's there were, guys, there were a lot of guys on the indies at that time um, that, that he, didn't get brought into ROH.
0: Yeah, he would have basically be in like a 2004 TNA polls, uh, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels situation all over again where there's a ton of great talent available. But kind of he would have to really shoot some guys up fairly – probably quicker than he normally would to, to – um, Replace that kind of gap with the top names, but, but he had shown he could do it, yeah, exactly. He just did that the year before, but and,
1: and you know he learned from Paul Heyman and we were just talking you know privately recently about how Paul Heyman just was amazing at that of just taking a talent and making them a star, at least in that world, and you know he he did it a few times after like raids or whatever from the big two, and you know suddenly e c w was reborn with a whole bunch of new you know major stars and I think Gabe did show an ability to do that, at least to some extent, during this era.
0: Absolutely. And uh, one last little note before we get to the show. This is just from the Observer Wrestling Observer recap of the uh, uh, May 10th SmackDown. Jimmy Jacobs debuted as the latest Ring of Honor champ to get squashed. He got no offense in against Eddie Guerrero in a match. Eddie Guerrero put a Mysterio mask on him and beat him down, including a brainbuster on a chair, which got Guerrero DQ'd. Dave, like... Come on, Jimmy Jacobs got the win there. He beat Eddie Guerrero, WWE giving a huge push to Jimmy Jacobs. But I do think, Matt, this was something interesting where it feels like every time a Ring of Honor worker got extra work at this point, there was always some people going like, oh, was, is WWE trying to destroy you know the credibility of the Ring of Honor champions? And I always thought – I don't think WWE at this point really would care that much. I mean maybe one fringe person, but I think – maybe I'm wrong here because certainly WWE's history with – doing everything they could to undercut competition is well known and continues to this day. But I, I think it's likely in this situation, these kind of situations it's they want, they need lots of extras for various segments. You need local wrestlers who can, you know, take a bump and not embarrass themselves. And probably a lot of these, you know, ring of honor guys were happy. Oh, well, clearly they were because they accepted the roles. Were happy to get the, uh, the exposure and get to say, Hey, I was in the ring with Andy Guerrero.
1: Yeah, although no one's ever gotten broke overestimating the um, the maliciousness behind some of WWE's booking decisions over the years. So who the heck knows?
0: Yeah, because we're not far away from John Walters. Like, this is not too long after John Walters, I think, you know, got beaten up in uh, some WETV stuff. So that's, I guess, why people are being a little suspicious. But either way, that brings us finally to the show itself. The show we are covering tonight is the final showdown. It took place May thirteenth, two thousand five, at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds in Dayton, Ohio, from a reported crowd of six hundred fans. So this was notable because this was a fairly pretty big crowd for Dayton and a pretty uh big top two matches. I think the first time Dayton ever had the steel cage, and in fact, um ring of honor according to the torch this was months before the show they wrote in the torch ring of honor will bring their steel cage to the midwest for the first time on may 13th in dayton and may 14th in chicago ring of honor is currently teasing a scramble cage at one of those events so i thought that was interesting i i kind of forgot or didn't know that uh they were initially considering doing just another i guess probably another random crazy scramble cage but instead they go with just Blowing off two major feuds, one each on each night, each time in the cage. So I think that's the better move. But it did feel like a lot of times with the cage, it was just kind of a a more of a random thing. Or even if you, or you're gonna have the cage for a major match anyway, and then you would throw a scramble cage match on top of it, you know, just because hey, we already got the cage. But and this is a case where they actually did not go as far as to book any kind of scramble cage match on this weekend.
1: Also, they really just did the scramble cage match a couple of months earlier. Um, but I, I, I do like the indiness of, hey, we've, we're bringing the cage to the Midwest. We might as well get two shows out of it instead of just one.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Just, we're not putting this thing on a truck and, and driving all the way to the Midwest for one show. You know, we're getting a double shot. We're doing double cage matches, but, uh. We open the show proper with Alex Shelley backstage. He says on the last show, he came so close to getting revenge on Austin Aries, but he says he got something more important, which is he got a taste of it, and it's sweet, like chocolate peanut butter pie, and he's hungry like Elvis in 1975. Uh, at this point, I just wrote my notes. How is a taste of revenge more important than actual revenge?
1: Yeah, I have literally, uh, literally the same notes that you have. So it's <laughs> it's just like, yeah, wh- why is that more important than the full thing? <laughs>
0: So, uh, anyway, Shelley goes on. He says he'll be coming for Ares again, but in fact, and in fact, all three members of Generation Next now have bullseyes on their foreheads. Shelley ends by quoting someone he says, all four of them beat up once, bang, bang. So, a little reference to Mick Foley, uh, and they're trying to keep the, uh, the Gen Next, uh, feud obviously alive, although I think clearly by stuff, a segment we'll see later in the show, they are now full blown transitioning into the setting up for Alex Shelley to turn full-fledged heel again and join the embassy because we're starting the angle where he basically gets rejected by everyone in a a more embarrassing way than he was getting rejected by people before in recent months.
1: Yeah. I mean uh, – well, and it's funny. Well, I guess I'll get to my – actually, the next point I'm going to make during his match.
0: Okay. And uh, next, we cut to homicide outside in the rain. He's looking across the street at a hospital because there was a hospital like right across the street from this building. And he says, "It's a beautiful day, and there's a beautiful hospital for the American <laughs> Dragon." Uh, homicide says, "Today, Friday the 13th, he's going to be charged with a homicide." The camera then does an extreme zoom to some ambulances parked across the street, which, you know. Good use for Ring of Honor of making use of of what's naturally there. We'll see another example of that not very quick, pretty quickly. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of corny and funny just Thomas, I like, look, you're going there across the street.
1: I I would like to um, ask anyone who's familiar with that area. Is that that a nice hospital? Is it beautiful? Because, you know, some hospitals are very nice. (laughs) <laughs> like just like aesthetically, I mean, you know, they're not good places to be, you know. I've
0: never been to. I've been to average hospital. I've never been to hospital. where I go, wow, this is nice. But you know what, man, I haven't been to that many hospitals, so uh, I'll count myself lucky there. Yeah, exactly um next we go to the ring because it's showtime and all three members of generation x make their way to the ring uh austin aries grabs the mic and he immediately tells a fan to shut his mouth then he tells another female fan to shut her mouth saying that if he wants her to open it he'll drop his pants so, her toots
1: also in in the category of things you can't say in 2021
0: <laughs> exactly um Aries says, tonight Jack Evans is going to get revenge on Samoa Joe for the bidding he took from him last time he was here in Dayton. He says, once Jack beats Joe, he'll prove how meaningless the pure title is. Aries then says, Roderick Strong is going to finish what he started and take out Alec Shelley once and for all. And then Aries then says he's going to beat down James Gibson tonight. Aries goes on about how he's the most dominant ring of honor uh, champion of all time and how he defends it all over the world when alex shelley then attacks him from behind he takes out all three members of generation x with evans in particular to get big back dry back body drop to the floor Uh, shelley then puts on aries sunglasses he gets on the mic and he says roderick strong's fingers and jack evans mouth smell like austin aries ass uh shelley tells strong to send aries and jack to the back Evans is complaining that Shelly broke his chain that's around his neck. Shelly then throws Aries' sunglasses, and Aries freaks out, saying that they cost $1,000. They then go to the back. They, they, Jack Evans and Roderick Strong, though, do go to the back, actually, here. So they that just leaves us, or no, Jack Evans and Austin Aries go to the back, excuse me. And that leaves us with our match. Alex Shelley defeats Roderick Strong via pinfall in 15 minutes, 12 seconds, after he hits him with two shell shocks. Uh, Matt, you said you were going to save thoughts for the opener, and in fact, you got a whole match to talk about now, and or even a segment. Um, what did you think about all of this?
1: Well, I thought the promo. I thought you know it wasn't a great promo, but I thought it was easily Aries' best, most confident promo in RO8 so far. He really seemed like he was starting to get the character down, which is funny because he's about to change the character since he's about to turn face like very, very shortly after this. But he did definitely – to me, I don't know if he thought the same thing. He just seemed much more comfortable in the role than in the other promos that we've seen him give recently, like that promo he did at the beginning of It All Begins and some of the backstage promos. I felt like he was, he was showing some of that championship personality. I don't know if, if you agree or not.
0: Yeah, I think he was getting a little more confident, I think, yeah. in, in just in, in terms of how he carried himself rather than – like the first few shows, it felt like he was trying really hard to like kind of prove he deserved to be in that spot. And now he just seems like a little more comfortable in that role, like less that he's – maybe feels like he has a giant chip on his shoulder, although I'm sure he still did to some extent.
1: Yeah, and, and I also enjoyed Evans when he came to the ring going – he looks at the camera and goes, Dayton, I can't believe we even wrestle here, <laughs> which I- – <laughs> Which I thought was a pretty good heel line to say. Um, we're getting to like almost like the last gasps of Generation Next as heels. Um, it's really very, very soon that they, that they make the transition to, uh, to baby faces. But well, the, the comment I was going to make is that, um, even though, you know, you mentioned this is like when Alex Shelley starts down the path of going toward the embassy, this is the match where he felt like the biggest babyface that he's ever been to me. Like I, no. I, I I felt that like he he was working like a babyface, you know. He was being treated by the crowd like a big babyface. Um, um, I don't know. I just I thought like again like these guys were just starting to click in these roles that they're about to leave, which I think is very odd. Um, this match I liked it a lot actually. I I don't think it was better than the Aries match, the Aries and Shelley's match at Manhattan Mayhem. But I thought it had some elements to it that I wish that match had. Like Shelly seemed pissed and he seemed like he was really – like these two guys seemed like they really hated each other and were like – they were like spitting on each other, snot blowing on each other, stiff kicks and strikes and all these things and just like a real sense of urgency. And I I remember I mentioned when we reviewed Manhattan Mayhem that I thought that match between Aries and Shelley was kind of missing some of that like it didn't feel as personal as you would think and this one did to me I don't know if, if if you saw the same thing but I I really felt that here and that that elevated the match a lot to me um you know it didn't get super dramatic down the stretch or anything but the work you know had a you know had a sense of urgency it had stiffness mixing in a bit of that um you know Alex Shelley finesse which I think is good but you know sh- you know it was also very um good for strong cuz he was he's a big striker and he got to do a lot of that stuff. They had some back work, you know, um uh Shelley was working on uh on Strong's back actually, which uh was you know kind of a turnabout. And then Strong kind of went after Shelley's Shelley's neck a little bit. And um you know when Strong um when Strong was on uh, on offense, he did you know he did some cool spots and he, you know some power stuff, some some neck targeting he did the full nelson um with his legs which and put turned into a pin which i always thought was cool um a lot of a lot of slaps back and forth even like when the guys are in holds um at one point uh strong goes for a sunset flip but Shelly rolls through, hits a basement dropkick on Strong, and then yells at Strong that he's a piece of shit. And even <laughs> Punk on commentary was like, whoa! Like Punk is like, hey, <laughs> language there, mister. Which I found very amusing. Um, you know, the end, the ending, uh, sequence was, uh, Strong putting Shelly over the middle rope in the corner. Uh, doing a, a double stomp to the back off the middle rope and then a backbreaker for two. Then he hits the double knees and goes for the, for the running kick, but Shelly gets a super kick. And then Strong hits a running kick that's not quite the sick kick, more just like a drop kick with his back facing the mat for two. But then Shelly pops up, gets another super kick and a shell shock for two and then hits a second shell shock for the win um so the finish was was okay it it was okay but i think the match itself it just i don't know it just had a good vibe to me um as i mentioned punk was on commentary with prazak and early on punk called roderick strong the policeman of generation next and i was like (laughs) i was like all right nolte you win you win this round um he, he he gets it. I got I got to say that's that's a victory for Nolte. Um, they also make mention of like they have they had a couple of refs on this show that are not typical ROH refs, and this one they mentioned that he's colorblind. And um, the Punk goes, "Does ROH get tax breaks by employing all these blind people?" You know, in <laughs> reference to Fast Eddie, and yeah. and, and and there are also these two people in the front row that we actually I've seen them at a lot of shows. I think they're they're relatively famous. These fans that wear these neon jumpsuits, um, you yeah, I've seen them over the years at WWE shows, ROH shows. I guess they're probably Ohio-based. And um, Pray makes a joke about how that colorblind ref, ref will probably get most of the matches, just so he's not because he's going to be the less, least distracted by the people wearing the jumpsuits. <laughs> Again, I don't know if these are insensitive jokes or just funny jokes. I don't know if these would be like cancelable jokes in 2021, but I don't know. Seem not so bad to me, uh, um, but. You know, guess you get a fast, yeah, the, colorblind person. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those fans were amazing too because they're they're older fans than you would think, and they got front row tickets to a, to a Ring of Honor show. And uh, although I guess older people can be, in fact, it's more likely nowadays that older people are wrestling fans than younger people. Um, but
1: guess what, we are, Trevor.
0: Nah, I'm not that old, man. I'm, I'm I'm in my 30s for a few more years. You you can't don't, don't bring me down. That don't I'm only there. a year older than you. Y'all y- oh, you're ancient. Oh, I can hear the brittleness of your bones. They <laughs> rattle as you talk. Anyway. Um,
1: That's what everyone was, says. I'm so sick of hearing that. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> before,
0: before we get I, – before I talk about the match, I guess I want to bring up a couple of things you kind of mentioned, which was um, praise. This is another show where Preyzek and Punk do a lot of the commentary and then Gabe will take Punk's spot for a couple of matches. Um, I noticed something really interesting on this show. This was a show where I really noticed – when punk and prazak t- were together prazak's commentary was significantly different where he was a lot more relaxed they're a little more laid b- back more jokey and laughs and then whenever gabe is on with him prazak is much more stiff trying to sell everything super hard and it kind of made me realize like you know and we're all on the record on this show that we do not hate gabe's commentary the way a lot of people do while also not thinking it's any by any means great but i think I, what what this show and maybe another show recently kind of expose like really put a point on to me is like I think one of Gabe's flaws is he's he's never relaxed he's never really enjoying things like everything feels like he's trying to sell something to you in every moment and obviously. That is a commentator's main role. But I also think you also have to try and express that you're having a good time too, and you're kind of like a friend watching the shows, at least a bit. And like even when Gabe is putting over how great a match is, I, I never it's it's always, you know, Gabe is, you know, doing commentary like the booker of a promotion does commentary. He is trying to sell every moment, explain every story point, which again can be good, but where and you notice when when is on, follows you know, he follows his lead. But when, when um he's on with punk, it's not quite IWA Mid South commentary, but it is more there's room to just go off on tangents occasionally and joke and just enjoy things and just go, Wow, look at that. And like did you first off, did you notice that matter am I reading too much into things?
1: Um. I noticed it, but I didn't notice it specifically, like, here for the first time. Like, that's just something I've always kind of realized about, you know, those two, like, Punk and Praise, like, just have a certain type of chemistry. You know, they've done it for so long. They're such good friends or at least, you know, work friends. You know, I don't know what their personal friendship is or was, but um, that, it, you know, it felt like they just had a vibe. I will say this about Gabe. There were moments when he was commentating with Doug Gentry that – you, he was a little bit looser. I, I can think of a couple of examples, but you're right for the most part that he's, he's definitely the hard sell type of guy and not much for the, uh, for the chilling out and going on tangents type.
0: That, that's a great question. I was going to bring up and I forgot. I, I will say that like Gabe is, yeah, yeah, exactly like you said. If you go back and listen, I forget what the shows were, but the first few shows Gabe announced with Doug, his voice is different and it does have more of that feeling of, two friends enjoying shows and i imagine some people didn't like that because clearly gabe changed in response to something because he became more more kind of forced high energy more even changed his name at one point but like i think there's some good elements of that early gabe because there are some moments where yeah in some ways it's a little less professional but it's also uh in some ways, you know, it, it does have more of that fun kind of two friends watching a show vibe, and he, he definitely – he loses that fairly quickly. I think he kind of discards that for whatever reason, and um – um But, yeah, the other thing I was going to mention about commentary is, speaking of things you were saying, you know, I don't know about, like, blind – you know, the the blind stuff, like, would that be offensive to people today or not? This would probably be very offensive. This is one of – maybe the first instance or one of the first instances on commentary, CM Punk says that Roderick Strong has freaky retard strength, which this would become a, like, a phrase – that announcers would say about Roderick Strong for quite a while. And eventually um, Excalibur Excalibur and PWG would find a good way to kind of make it a more PC version where he would instead of calling it Freaky Retard Strength, he would start calling it Freaky Roderick Strength. But uh, yeah, that's another thing you probably could not get away with today. But it was even at this early stage of his career, Roderick Strong already had like this reputation for being like really strong, kind of a cardio beast, just like – a, a, a specimen more than you might think from just looking at him. And uh, Strong, so as Strong
1: look, is literally his last name.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's funny though, because when I would first see Roderick Strong, and I would go, with a name like Strong, you're expecting like a 300-pound guy with muscles on muscles, and especially this era, Roderick Strong, he had like a bit of baby fat on him, so it was interesting, but then, he would, then you'd watch him work, and he would do like, you know, the big lift the guy up into the half-nelson backbreaker, or that kind of stuff, and hit hard with the chops, but so for this match, um, after all the tangents, um, I, I, I like this match a little less than you, but I thought it was a good opener. I, I enjoyed it. I agree that it did have more of what I th- what we both felt like Aries and um, Shelly was missing, which is kind of that hatred. Although quite frankly, even with this match, I could have used more of it. We got, a, we got some more, but I felt like I could have used a lot more. Um, I, I felt like this was a good match, but it, it's one of those matches where, I I'm noticing I'm getting slightly disappointed with a lot with more matches of ring of honor now cuz we're reaching an era where the roster is so good with so many wrestlers I really really like a lot or love and the promotion is so good in some ways that like my expectations for everything is getting higher but at the same time I'm noticing there's a lot of matches where I go oh that's slightly disappointed, but it's still pretty darn good like there's a lot of wrestling companies I could watch where I could see something that disappoints me and I would say, oh, that wasn't good at all. Where a disappointment in Ring of Honor for me is usually still better than average. And I thought this is more than better than average. This was an outright good opener. It did feel like maybe that they were, you know, it felt like an opener in the sense that I felt like they were not quite doing everything they could do if they were in a main event spot, which, you know, in some ways that's one way to do an opener. You know, there's the mindset of the openers. You just go balls to the wall and try to have a super hot start to the show. And then there's the opener where you try to have a good match, but you're not – you're trying to leave a little on the table to not just completely screw it over for everybody else on the show that now has to follow you. So – I thought it was an enjoyable match. I thought, uh, Shelly did a little more high flying than usual. He does like that big flip dive over the ropes. He does a flying crossbody. He does a nice Rana. And like Alex Shelley could always fly, but it felt like on this show, maybe going to what you said about him, like this is his, him at his most baby face. It felt like he was doing a bit more even of like the crowd pleasing offense, even though I think Alex Shelley's always kind of a, a fun guy to watch, but definitely had a bit more of that baby face energy, like you said. And, I think my favorite segment of the match was probably even just, they had like this segment you see in so many indie shows where guys counter each other's moves and then have a standoff. And that seems to be so overdone, but when it's former stable partners, I think that's one of the times where it's really appropriate to do that. To show like, hey, these guys used to wrestle together, they, you know, trained and hung out together, and so they know each other really well. And then my last thing to mention, Matt, is, uh, this is another one of those shows, which is one of my least favorite Ring of Honor production things. In fact, it might be my least favorite, which is the color balance between the hard, uh, the the hard camera and the handheld ringside camera are completely different. The, I forgot anytime- to me-
1: I forgot to mention that. I wrote that down too. It's very noticeable in this, especially early on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, so anytime you're, you're watching it, um, the hand, the hard cam is more of a blue tint, which you would kind of just quickly get used to if it matched the hard. I um, mean, the handheld cam, but every time the handheld cam gets cut to, it looks like you'd expect a wrestling show. It looks like a more neutral color tone, and then it cuts back and forth, so it looks like they're being shot in two different buildings almost, and it's. You eventually, I eventually got used to it to some degree, but we've. This is not the first time Ring of Honor had a show like this, and it's pretty distracting. Like, not even unprofessional. Some things, there Ring of Honor, you know, production things where we go, oh, that's kind of just unprofessional looking. This is outright like distracting. Like, it, it, it was detrimental to my enjoyment. I would say of the first couple of matches of the show. Um, I'd agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, moving on. Uh, immediately after the match, uh, Ares and Evans race into the ring, but Shelly just escapes, unscathed, like he's quick enough to be aware. I know these guys are coming and he gets out of the rings before they can even lay a finger on him. So again, we're keeping this this feud. The Even though, you know, Shelly lost to Ares clean on the last show, they are definitely making a note on the very next show to to kind of let you know, like this feud is still alive. still The grudge is still there. It's not ending at any point soon. And then we... uh. We go back outside. We're speaking, I said earlier, where they were using things that were local to them. They used the uh, hospital that was across the street. We now see Prince Nana and Jimmy Rave walking near a helicopter. We are – supposed to believe they got off the helicopter. In actuality, I believe uh, um, apparently the hospital had a helipad, a ground-level helipad where helicopters would occasionally land. And uh, it seems like probably the helicopter just landed and they decided to for, you know take – Use their good fortune, tape a promo with that in the background and be able to say, hey, look, Nana's flying helicopters with Jimmy Ray.
1: They said they got off a helicopter from New York. And I was genuinely wondering, do people take helicopters that distance? They go from like New York to Ohio just on like a helicopter? Is that – you know, cause I never thought of helicopters as being like distance. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about. So that's why I'm asking, but like, I feel like, you know, you like airlift somebody to the nearest hospital or something on a helicopter, you know, or you take someone from, um, you know, from the White House to the air, the Andrews Air Force Base to get on Air Force One, not like you go across several states on one i i don't know you tell yeah, me i
0: remember you mentioned that to me like a week or two ago and i remember we looked up like oh this is like the fuel capacity and the distance of most um, helicopters and i think we quickly determined that like yeah this wouldn't be like a realistic feasible prudent thing to do like or no, like
1: it, or like a pleasant one right like it was yeah, it's like, not a
0: luxury either yeah, yeah exactly you know, you'd much rather have like a private jet than be cramped next to Prince Nana and Jimmy cramped together in a helicopter for like three hours to get to Dayton, Ohio. But uh, um, uh anyway, you know, Nana just says that he says, oh, we just flew this motor, this uh, helicopter from New York to Dayton. Rave says he's going to end CM Punk's career tomorrow in Chicago, leaving him in a bloody mess. Nana says they also have plans for Punk today, though. So who knows if he'll even make it to Chicago tomorrow? And then next we have another match. Matt Stryker defeated the masked Chicago superstar via submission in three minutes, 23 seconds, when he made him tap out to the Stryker lock. Now, I believe that the masked Chicago superstar is HC Loke wearing a mask. Um, Matt, I thought there was something kind of darkly funny about commentary saying that strike, Matt Stryker's gimmick is that he only wrestles where he's respected, and it's they're saying this during a match that's a three-minute squash against a wrestler that doesn't even really technically exist. While the announcers spend most of their time talking about um, CM Punk's upcoming match and the crowd chants "Let's go, Jobber!" Like, it's, yes, it's, that's where he's respected.
1: <laughs> it's also funny that like at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the match they um there's a welcome back champ but then immediately they go to let's go jobber so it's like they, they're they happy that matt is back so they can harass him i guess is the uh is the reason they're welcoming him back i actually have a question which is why is this on the tpt because like I, I i think we we talked about how um striker um you know maybe helps promote some of these shows in the midwest but like okay so you put them on the show but why would this match be on the DVD? Like, what does this accomplish for anybody? It's not a good match, and it doesn't forward any storylines, and Matt Striker's not going to have too many more matches in ROH after this. Why is this on the DVD?
0: Yeah, like, you're going to wonder why, why is it on the DVD. I'm really wondering why... Matt Striker still being booked other than maybe it feels like they owe him something because maybe he does help them out with promoting in this area because I believe he does work a multi-man match on the next show that does not make the DVD. But on this show, yes, the match makes the DVD and it's one of those things where I guess like exactly what you said – who does this serve? Like, it's not – I mean, it, it's a three-minute squash, so it's not like it's painful to watch. But it's not really entertaining. It's not adding to the show. It's not playing into any future storyline. It's not giving Matt Stryker a chance to show anything to anybody. Um, the Masked Chicago Superstar is not even a, a real character. It's literally just H.C. look putting on a mask. So, like, that's how little they thought of Matt Stryker at this point, which was they didn't even want him, like, beating one half of the Carnage crew. Like, they, they didn't want to give him a win over – anybody in the company so they literally just would put a mask on a guy and go hey you know you can beat the mass chicago superstar and it like, almost I, feels I, like
1: they, it's almost like they just didn't want to put out a dvd that didn't run three hours
0: it, yeah it, it's just weird like and i and I, you know if i'm matt striker you know this is almost like one of those situations where i'm almost going like it's almost I almost don't know if I would want this. Like, it's almost like those rock and rebel matches where, because he had the Philly promoter's license, he'd get to wrestle like three to five minute matches that wouldn't make the DVD that the crowd wouldn't enjoy. I I almost think like at some point, I think we mentioned once before, like we were trying to think if we were in his shoes, like, would you really want that kind of pity? Well, I guess he was probably asking for it, but like, I wouldn't want that. I would feel kind of embarrassed. And I would feel like if I'm Matt Stryker, like, Yes I'm technically getting another ring of honor booking but and I yes I'm getting a quote unquote win but yeah even just the hearing the crowd chat let's go jobber in your hometown I, I don't know if I would want that on a DVd I don't know
1: yeah, I, I don't know either. Um, but it was on there and it was nothing. Like it's just the most notable thing was Let's Go Jobber. Also that Stryker attacked the jobber before the bell. So there was oddly no code of honor followed in this random <laughs> second match squash for some reason. But other than that, um, yeah, not noteworthy.
0: So next week, speaking of not noteworthy, we cut to Brian Danielson backstage, sitting and literally stroking his beard, staring at a New York Yankees jacket that's just randomly laying on a table. Uh, Gabe asks him from behind the camera, "Does he want to give a couple words about his upcoming match?" Danielson just says, "Do I look like I want to give a couple words?" End of segment. <laughs> that was the entire segment. Stroke beard, look at Yankees jacket, say I don't want to do a promo. <laughs> deep, co- deep character building here. Speaking of things that, you know, stretching out that DVD that, you know, we've watched a lot of shows recently where it felt like they had to cut things to pack it in. This was definitely a show where it felt like they did not need to, that they had the time to fit a lot of things in. Um Next, we get a clip of Jay Lethal from the trios tournament with voiceover from, and you pointed this out. You were so excited, and I and I, I am excited about it too. This is technically for you fans who want like your little trivial pursuit, little weird factoids of Ring of Honor trivia. This is the first appearance of Lenny Leonard ever in Ring of Honor. This is Lenny Leonard doing the voiceover just on the show for this one segment because as we see clips of Jay Lethal from prior matches, Lenny Leonard tells us that Jay's neck is injured as a result of the Rottweiler's attack from the last show, and he's expected to miss significant time as a result. I don't know why Lenny literally did the voiceover for this one little thing here if you i guess i assume he was probably doing fip commentary by this and was just in the studio so they had him do it but yeah this is uh this is the first time lenny leonard ever did something on a ring of honor release
1: yeah it's a big big moment for for all of us uh ring of honor fans no seriously though like we like lenny leonard a lot and it's nice to know that his era is beginning um the funny thing is okay so they they just the this segment they, they use it to talk about Jay Lethal's um, you know injury from the cop killer, double stomp, um, although I think it's very funny that instead of showing a clip from that, they show a clip from the Trios tournament. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff like that, uh, but um, also I, it's a good time to note that on this show, one thing they've started to do a lot is during entrances. They'll show clips of past shows to, I guess, sort of explain why matches are happening. But some of the clips are oddly chosen and none of them are spoken about by the commentators. And so some of the clips just really hang out there like, what is this? You know, and I mean, we watch every show, so it's not like that for us. But if you're just like watching this for the first time and they just show a clip, it's kind of weird. I don't know if you noticed that.
0: I did, and also just in general, there was a lot more production on the show, and I think on recent, uh, maybe I don't know if it started on the show or maybe started a show or two ago, but like, and it's because they had more time to stretch. But not only did they show just clips of prior matches with zero context during entrances that relate to what the match that's going to happen, but there was also there's, we'll get to it later. There's like a full fledged like, pay per view style like music video hype video for the main event. There's um. You know, the FIP stuff, and there's even a couple, and Ring of Honor's done this before, but I think there's at least a couple on the show, like, instant replays of big spots, like, during the main event, and uh, maybe one other match or something, so, like, definitely more video production on this show than you're used to in Ring of Honor, even if it's, like, like, you said, they're not always taking full advantage of it, of actually, like, referencing, oh, this is what you just saw, but... Definitely, I think, more than we've ever seen before, I would say, on this show in terms of just the sheer amount of, like, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, they're doing a lot of it, but they're doing it in, like, a weird way that doesn't, like, <laughs> maximize effectiveness. I, I, they, For some reason, they have this very strong inclination to, during this era, of not having the announcers talk during anything except for an actual bell-to-bell match. Like, they did That's kind of like their MO for years at this point. But I feel like they, they, they hold to it a little bit too hard. Like you know, if they're going to show a past clip, why not just have the announcers explain what we're seeing? Like I don't understand why they have this, this, this rule about that, about the announcers only talk during matches and that's it. I don't get it. But yeah, I mean it's not that big of a deal. But it's just weird. It's a weird thing.
0: So to sum up that segment, if you have anyone that thinks they're a real Ring of Honor super fan, be like, I want to bet you ten bucks that you don't know when Lenny Leonard's first Ring of Honor show was, and maybe they'll say, you know, the first show he announced, which I actually don't remember at this point, and then you can trip up and go, ah, it was the final showdown, and that's definitely a real thing that could happen between two people on this planet that would make bets like that. Definitely not just a completely unrealistic hypothetical. It
1: will but, happen between Trevor and me and then in a year we get to see who has the worst memory. Mm.
0: <laughs> it will definitely be me that has the worst memory. I, um, I don't know. Sheer terror at the things I forget, but... Next up, we got a four-corner survival match. Jack Evans defeated Delirious Ebitaro and Samoa Joe in 13 minutes, 20 seconds when he pins Delirious after he hits the 630 splash. So before the match, Joe gets on the mic and he says that the champ is here because this is his first match in Ring of Honor. After winning the pure title, he gets to come out as his entrance again to the champ is here, which was played after he won the title on the last show, but it's his back to being his entrance theme. Um... Evitaro keeps photobombing Joe's shots, which is pretty hilarious. Uh, Joe says because he recently got ran into a got run into a brick wall, the brick wall that is the Rottweilers. Ring of Honor decided tonight to give him the night off. Aw- and he, before he can say off, he changes and goes, uh, to take it easy on me, which draws laughs from the crowd. Joe calls his opponents all fine competitors in their own way. So if anyone pins him tonight, even though this is nowhere near what pure wrestling should be, they can hold possession of his title until he comes to get it back. Um, at this point, uh, we'll get our first note of the night. We had someone, a fan of the show, email us with some live notes, so I'm gonna sprinkle a couple of those throughout the show when they're, uh, applicable. Ronnie, I don't know if I should give his last name or not, so I'll just say Ronnie. He wrote for this match. I remember everyone being confused after the four-way match. During Samoa Joe's promo before the match, a lot of people in the crowd thought he said he was putting the pure title on the line. So when Jack Evans won, and I couldn't even remember who won until I looked at the results, everyone thought Joe lost the title. I remember I bought the DVD just so I could try to actually figure out just what Joe did. So, yeah, it is a little – I mean I could get it from listening to his promo, but I guess, you know – I think they've done this before. Joe did this once before, maybe yeah, before when yeah. he was world champ, with the idea which is he will say, look, I don't have to defend my title tonight, but if anyone directly pins me, I'll give them the title. But the the implied thing of of that is if I lose the match but no one pins me, I'm not losing the title. So I can understand why that would be confusing to people because that's kind of a weird step to – especially just drop on people.
1: Also, yeah, it was supposed to be a reference to 2003 and like how many of these – People were even watching in 2003 at this point. Like the way it was when – so it was the first night that he, um, he was ROH champion. And he did the same thing with – when he was against um, – I'm trying to think. It was like Tom Carter and Colt Cabana and I forget who the – Was f- it
0: like Hernandez or somebody yeah, like that or something?
1: I think he did – or did he have a singles – I don't even remember. Might I'm not been, sure either. It <laughs> might have been Hernandez. Speaking I of our memories. Yeah. Or maybe it was Maybe it was just a three – I think Matt Stryker actually might have been one of them. And, um, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. So yeah, the, the idea was that he was, um, he was not even that he was putting the belt on the line. It was that if somebody pins me, they get to take possession of the title. Like they were very vague about it. Like they just get to hold the belt, which is like, okay, great. Like that's, I mean, does that mean anything? I don't know. But there was, this was supposed to be a callback to that. Um, and yeah, I if you were there live, I with with their sound quality, I'm sure that that was not very clear.
0: And here's how deep a cut it was. Until you mentioned that I didn't even remember that that was a callback to that. But now that you think of it, yeah, because Joe's in the exact same position. He's the newly won champion. And although I think the conceit of that that one where he was the world champion, that four-way, I think it was a four-way, was the idea that he was booked for this match before he w- became champion. So he didn't technically have to defend the title, but he was like saying, you know, I'm going to be a fighting champion, like Xavier. So, hey, if someone beats me tonight, directly pins me, I'll I'll give them the title. But I think that in that match, it was a moot point, I think, because I think Joe takes the fall and he wins that match. So it doesn't right. matter. No one gets confused. He just wins, I think. So um anyway, for this match itself, oh, one thing before I talk about the match. So it's kind of funny. Jay Lethal, they were doing a storyline injury from the Rottweilers attack at the end of the last show, Manhattan Mayhem. Samoa Joe was actually the guy in that team that got legit hurt in Manhattan Mayhem, apparently, because the Observer said that a actually when um, when Loki did the flying top rope double stomp as Joe was draped on the ropes, it caused the rope to kind of snap back at Joe in a weird way he wasn 't expecting, and it legitimately injured his ribs, which explains why he barely works on this in this match, and he does not work the next night. He just signs autographs, he does not work a match on the show, he does work an interview segment so kind of funny jay lethal's the guy that 's being written out for a little while giving a little break, and Joe is actually the guy who got hurt from those that segment. But, um, so the story of this match is this is easily the most silly, goofy, over the top comedy match Ring of Honor had ever done to, up to this point. Joe only wrestled, I think, Tags in a couple times in the match to do a couple brief exchanges. This is almost all delirious Evitaro, who is Ebison, who the announcers actually make a note during Evitaro's entrance to say that, like, due to, uh, I forget exactly how they put it, but basically, because of, uh, his John, I think they said something like, because his, like Bobby Cruz said something, because, because his Japanese contract expired, he is now known as Ebataro instead of Ebasan. And, I, it's funny because when I looked online, Ebataro is spelled E-B-E-T-A-R-O. The Ring of Honor graphic spells it, instead of ro at the end it says roh at the end so i don't know if that was intentional or probably just a typo or who's right there but um so you get lots of comments. the get- years <laughs> that's our our side podcast where we just cover uh-huh. every one of his matches <laughs> um, well, that'll be fun for you someone, could. for someone. You know what that would be great for? That would have been a great April Fool's through the years like upload yeah. to our feet. We should have done like a 15-minute thing where we pretended that was going to be the new show. Well, next year, we mean, could,
1: next year we could do Kikutaro the years.
0: <laughs> so um, this match – how much are you going to like this match? is going to be completely determined by how much you like goofy comedy matches. There, there were fans on this, ma- on this show that were chanting match of the year. Not all of them, but a few, you could hear a few fans chanting match of the year after this match. When I posted a picture to kind of preview that we were recording the show tonight, when I posted the picture on Twitter, I got a couple of people that were immediately replied going, Oh, I love this match. I still remember this match. And I I imagine that there's some people that would completely hate this kind of match because as you noted, Matt, um, you know, there is outright Orange Cassidy style slow motion wrestling. Obviously, slow motion wrestling comedy spots would become a big thing in indie wrestling, probably starting around this time for years to come. Especially PWG and some of their big tag matches or Chikara, they would all do like the very extended slow motion spots. You know, and Delirious and I believe Evitaro have like a full blown the first time I've ever seen it in Ring of Honor, maybe the first time I'd, I'd ever seen it in wrestling period. Uh a slow-mo sequence like that. Um, Jack Evans puts on the uh, the headband again and brings back the Washington Wizard Karate Man Jack Evans gimmick. And just like last time, Joe beats the crap out of him and knocks him out of his shoes. I assume, so the, sh- rep- I
1: assume the shoes thing was intentional this time, but who knows? Yeah,
0: so the, they're, they're repeating spots from the, the Dayton tag, the infamous Dayton tag, which was great, where the whole match was about Jack Evans getting the shit beat out of him. Um this is a, but to me, so my opinion of this match, you know, it's mostly comedy. Although there is some wrestling in it too. In, in my opinion, I fall in between probably a lot of people. I I enjoy these comedy matches when they're occasional. I believe, like like most comedy in in general, if you do the same stuff over and over again, it stops being funny. It starts getting kind of tired. I believe, like when I'm watching a lot of these early like delirious performances, I remember really liking a delirious comedy when I first started seeing him. And then by the end of like a year or two running ring of honor, I was starting to get really sick of his comedy. I feel like not having watched him in so many years, it's kind of reset myself. Like I've had enough of a break where I'm like, Oh, it's fun to revisit like these early performances and those, those kind of tropes. He would do like the crazy running in and out of the ring and the gibberish talking with occasional English and all that stuff. And It's the same with this match. Like, there was a time in the indies where I felt like when I was watching Ring of Honor, you know, it didn't happen very often in Ring of Honor, but if you were watching, like, promotions like Jakarta and stuff, there was a moment where, like, the really goofy slow-mo stuff was fairly frequent. and was starting to get kind of tiring. But I actually enjoyed this a fair bit, this match, because even though it's a lot of really goofy comedy, I hadn't seen a lot of it like that recently. And you, if watching Ring of Honor again... This is the first time we'd ever seen them go this goofy and I, I enjoyed it a fair bit. If not it's not a match of the year, Matt, um, but I enjoyed it. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I mean when I when I look back at the way people wrote about this match and like hear the reactions people have, like just based on like their memories, people really love this match. Like it's like it was, you know, considered like the funniest thing ever at the time and just so amazing and you know, I don't I definitely don't have that response to it. Like but I enjoyed it. I have no problem with it, like at all. I, I, you know, I enjoyed it at the time too, and it's a fun little different thing. But that's pretty much the extent of it to me. Like it's a fun little thing, you know. I'm not like wow, they just they just changed the game right here, you know. It's not nothing like that. But you know, there they was it was fun. It was entertaining. It was different. Um, and I, you know, that's good enough for me. On a, on a you know, when we watch a lot of these TVDs, you know, so something different. That's always nice, and they do a good job. They seem to be enjoying themselves with it. I definitely liked, you know, Kit Kataro and Delirious doing the slow motion stuff. But it really is funny, you know, knowing how like how much Orange Cassidy – because it's not just that they were fighting in slow motion, right? It's that they were like doing soft punches and strikes and selling them really hard, and that really reminds me of you know really reminded me of Orange Cassidy. Like clearly, this sort of stuff had a big influence on his shtick that he would develop. Um, was he already wrestling at this point? Uh, or in 2005, had he started?
0: Here is the problem: is a lot of the. There, I know Orange Cassidy was some of the Mass Chikara guys, or at least one of them. I think he was like Fire Ant or somebody. So, like for all I know, like I'm not deep into the Ch- Chikara lore, even though I watch some of that stuff. So, for all I know, he could have been 18 mass wrestlers at this point, and I wouldn't know. You know, you know that's a bit of a problem for me.
1: Yeah, that's true. Same here. Um, but you know, like they're you know they did some fun stuff. I also. You know, like, there was some other fun stuff, too. Like, at the beginning of the match, you know, Delirious did his thing where he reacted to the bell by this. He didn't run all the way around. He just hid under the ring. And Dave Prazak did a Strong Bad reference. He goes, Delirious was weirded out. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, nice, Strong Bad. That was the mid-2000s. Um, um, and I also liked that, you know, Jack Evans, he would do a bunch of break dances and stuff. And... You know, Ebatara would just stomp on his head and yell, What are you doing, man? And then Evans would return the favor and yell, "Konichiwa, bitch! And, and then e- Evans also was saying boom a lot. I don't know if you noticed that. He would just be like, boom! Like whenever he would do like anything early on, like a break dance or a kick or a move, he'd just look at somebody and go, boom! And, you know, he should do that more. I feel like that should be... A, he should be a Jack Boom Evans. Um, that, that should be his nickname. But... Um, um but you know and, you know they the, the stuff with uh, Joe and Evans um you know people you know and all like the, the paint brushing with the shoes and all that stuff people enjoyed that um there was also a a segment where Ebitaro did a bunch of Ric flair stuff right where he would like do the flair um you know do the flare flip over the ropes and do some chops and strut and do the flare flop and he got press slammed off the top rope and did the bag begged off and poked him in the eye and and that was fun but and you know and they did this some um, kind of surprise ending right because you know they, they sort of treated evans here like he was a you know kind of a goof like like ebitaro and delirious instead of being you know a guy who almost won the tag team titles the week before and you know was a major part of a major you know what i mean like
0: evans- and he sold for everyone in this match too like he took offense from everybody in this match even in a match that was a lot of comedy
1: Right, you know, this was almost like Evan, Evans was is played almost like a different role here than he normally does, because he's definitely supposed to be a lot more of a goof. But then they sort of turn it on its head because he wins the match, right? Like Joe is, um, you know, Joe has the uh, has the choke on, and um, and Evans hits the six thirty on Delirious and sort of quote steals the pin. Um so they are making sure that they are protecting Evans to some degree even while allowing him to be a comedy figure in the match but but yeah i i didn't think this was like wow oh my god so great and brilliant just it was fun it was different
0: and the end was a little weird too cuz the end yeah like you said it it's Joe gets Ebataro in the choke but Jack Evans had already blind tagged himself in so Joe's not the legal man and then Joe uh hits the 630 on Delirious But it's like why the ref wasn't like was reacting to Joe's choke as if it was like a serious predicament. He wasn't telling Joe that he wasn't the legal man, and then I don't know if Delirious was the legal man. I mean, it's there's some weirdness with the legal man that'll be coming in another match later. We're we're back to that Ring of Honor thing again, where they are very inconsistent about when they choose to pay attention to when the legal man matters or not and how they react to that but it almost feels like it it, it almost feels like i'm just wasting my time criticizing like a rules thing in a match that's meant to be this goofy i mean but,
1: I, I mean i wasn't gonna say it what's the point of this show if not to be super nitpicky right
0: exactly uh matt your memory is better than mine. Does does anything come of Jack Evans getting the win here? Because I think even the observer, I think Dave wrote like presumably to set up a Jack Evans uh, match against Joe for the Pure Title. Like, I don't no, think that nope, ever happens. Abs- absolutely,
1: absolutely not. Nope. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So this is another thing where Joe. I mean, technically Jack Evans beats Joe in a match, not directly. But I don't believe there is any follow up to this. Well,
1: after uh, June again, Evans is gone from ROH for a few months, so maybe they would have had a match. You know, and Evans maybe. just left, you know it doesn't you know it's hard to say.
0: That would have been interesting to see, honestly, a, a Jack Evans Samoa Joe pure title match. I, I mean, I definitely would have been curious to see that. But, Same. Uh, so a uh, one other thing I want to mention for that match too is uh, there's at one point where Delirious hits a million clotheslines lines in a row to I believe Jack Evans just will not stop crazy crowd loves it and online reviewer dark pegasus he reviewed all the early ring of honor shows i believe for 411 mania so if you want to always a good resource to look at stuff he counted them he claims it was 37 in a row so props to him for counting only dave Meltzer and a few others are willing to count things like that like rotation like dave Meltzer recently i believe like counted the rotations of a cesaro spin and he and like had some great exchange with Brian Alvarez on, like, an Observer Radio where it's like, you really counted or something like this?" like, yeah, I counted. Like, there are certain people that have to know. They just have to know. And and I'm not one of those people, but I'm glad those people exist. So, um, after the match, a pissed-off Joe throws a Jack Evans shoe at the ref, and Evatar and Delirious hug each other to cheers and a few people chatting match of the year. Um... We go backstage to James Gibson, who says he can't think of a better place to realize his dream of becoming Ring of Honor champion than in Dayton, which is, I don't know if he knew that he would be end up becoming the champ in Dayton, but they turn out to be very prophet, prophetic words. Uh, he reminds us that the last time he was here, he wrestled Spanky, and the crowd gave him an ovation that was the, one of the highlights of his career. Gibson says he underestimated Austin Aries last time, and then he introduces us to the man staying behind him, who is just the most unassuming, average, normal looking person I've ever seen. Does not look like a pro wrestler at all. A guy, he says, is his, is his old trainer named Danny Ray Nielsen. He says, 10 long years ago, Danny trained him, and for the last two weeks he's been drilling the basics with J- with Gibson to get him ready for the match. So, yeah, this Danny Ray Nielsen never heard of him before. Maybe I'm someone I should know. I don't know, but he says I, Jose I, I, Lothario. For a second, I thought it was like is, is James Gibson like the Make a Wish program for middle aged people or something like I just it did not look like a, a trainer. And uh, but there he was. That brings us to the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Match. B.J. Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs defeated the Second City Saints, Ace Steel, and CM Punk in 1642 when Jacobs pinned Punk after they hit the Doomsday Device Grana. So a successful defense for them. Um, Matt, before I ask for your opinion on the match, I've, I've heard people say, like, why did this match even happen? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I have a theory on that, which is... Yeah, Ace Steel and CM Punk have not been a regular tag team. There's no, They're not feuding with BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs. There's no follow up to this. It's kind of weird. Why do they just get a tag title match out of nowhere? And I think the storyline reason, in a weird way, is part the, I, I have to wonder. I would love, you know, and Gabe has said that his memory on like old stuff he's booked from years ago was really bad, but he probably wouldn't have an answer. But I would love to know if he actually had originally booked this match when BJ and Danny Moff won the tag titles and he thought we'd get to this. Because the only way this match makes sense to me is if the idea that, hey, BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff had that great hardcore match that ended the Prophecy in Second City Saints feud. They had that against Ace Steel and CM Punk and Ace Steel and CM Punk beat them there. So it makes sense that when BJ and Moff win the tag titles, that you would give Ace and Punk a tag title match, even though, Basically, Ace and Punk have not really teamed together since then as a a tag team and don't really deserve a tag title shot. You can at least say, hey, they beat the champs. They have a win over them. They deserve a shot. And in fact, the clips they show, as you've mentioned before, with no context by the announcers, are of like that feud and of B.J. Whitmer and Punk feuding. And it makes perfect sense if it was B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff. But it's B.J. Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs, which – Makes it. I, I can understand why people would go in the face. Why is this match happening? But did you notice that,
1: what the clip was that they showed of Punk and Whitmer at the uh, at the Chicago Street Fight? What was that one again? No, I, I heard, what was it? It was just they were standing in the ring and there were a bunch of chairs in the ring. Like it was after the chairs were thrown. They didn't show any moves being done. They were just standing there.
0: <laughs> so uh, Matt, weird choices. Not <laughs> uh, what did you think about this this match? Uh, you know, definitely on paper. You know, not the sexiest match, but there's some good talent in this match.
1: Isn't A Steel called Sexy A Steel?
0: Okay, so technically this is a sexy match. Yeah, you, technically, you technically that, this is the again.
1: sexiest match on the show. Technically, <laughs> like just purely from a technical standpoint. Um, but um, now I well, the first my first reaction was this is going to be different than their first tag team title defense <laughs> because that was against Roderick Strong and Jack Evans, and that was a big old spot fest, and it was very different. Um, I would actually say this had the quietest crowd probably of any match on the entire show especially the middle portion i don't know if you would agree with that but i thought in general this was a pretty well responding crowd not like the hottest crowd they ever had or anything but pretty good and i thought this they were not they were not so into this um yeah they they, um and, and i can understand why it was you know a lot of the um the middle portion of the match it didn't seem like there was I don't know that much going on like at the beginning Punk is acting like a big strong guy he's pushing Jacobs away after every lock up and yelling come on Jimmy and I was like is Punk being a bully or just a competitor I don't know <laughs> um but you know it becomes a very like they 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 start or they start the match in a very typical ROH way which I don't know if you've noticed they do this in a lot of ROH tag matches in this era where they have two guys pair off and then they both exit the ring and the other two guys pair off like that's that seems to be a big roh trope like where it's like almost like you start with certain pairs that will wrestle each other a bunch and then the other pair before they really mix and match um they did that here um you know i still like whitmers and jacobs double team stuff but they do it you know they do a bit of a heat segment on Ace steel whitmer power bombs jacobs onto steel all that stuff um at one point, Gabe said that um, neither of Whitmer's previous title title reigns lasted very long, but it's not really fair since he didn't lose the tag team titles the second time. You know, like he just sort of like – I consider this almost like a continuation of his last tag team title yeah. reign. That, that's how I feel about it. But um, I guess technically it is different because he was – the title was vacant. But um, when so like when Punk tags in from Ace, it's not really a hot tag um because the saints i guess are now getting the heat on jacobs which you know makes sense that is the role that jacobs tends to play and you know there's they, they do some cool spots like um punk does a giant swing and ace comes off the middle rope with a drop kick and you, you definitely don't see that too often from from either guy um so i thought that was a good spot so you know they did some good stuff they they work over jacobs back um you know, Ace does this wacky Indian deathlock butterfly arm hold where he tries to bend Jacobs in half. And, you know, Whitmer keeps breaking it up. Um, Punk and Steel go for a delayed double team vertical suplex. And Punk finishes it on his own. And I would have loved to have Dave Melcher there to count that one um, to see how long <laughs> he held him up. But. Um, but you know, so they work on Jacobs for a while and they're selling Jacob's toughness and Whitmer but but the thing is Whitmer keeps making the save every time. So if if he keeps getting saved, is he really being tough? Or is his um or is his partner just not showing any mercy to him? And like right, right? Like I don't know. It's it's kind of a weird
0: and I know that's something uh Shane Hagedorn complained about these these matches on an on an honorable mention, their podcast at the, around this time, <clears throat> where if you make a save on every near fall, you're kind of like diluting the impact of making a save because the idea of a save is kind of you're putting over how big uh, a near fall could potentially be like oh i'm only making the save because i really think my partner's in danger of losing after that move and if you make the if you make a save all the time you're you're basically like watering that down that, that all of a sudden doesn't have an impact
1: right i guess that's classic wrestling like veteran psychology too right like only make the save at the big at the biggest moment so that it has the most um so that it has the most impact, right? Um, yeah, and you know, I guess you know that it's not something that a lot of people abide by a lot of the time, yeah. but. Um, but, you know, and, like, Whitmer gets a, gets a hot tag at one point, and it's, it doesn't have much heat, but he is a house of fire, and he's, you know, dropping Punk on his head and doing rolling suplexes on Ace Steel and powerbombing him, but when he's powerbombing him, Ace drops down, leaving him to get exposed to get hit with a Shining Wizard by Punk. Then Jacobs comes off the top rope against Punk, but Punk catches him, puts him in a, break, a backbreaker. Then... um the saints double team whitmer punk hits a top rope leg drop for two and the crowd is starting to get into this sequence um but it doesn't seem like they really buy that punk and steel have a chance of winning um they do a um a power bomb top rope clothesline combo and cover whitmer jacobs makes the save there then um punk gets does get a pop of this like wacky head dropping suplex on whitmer and he gets whitmer in the anaconda vice but um jimmy crotches ace on the top rope and then breaks up the anaconda vice with a back second um jacobs ducks a punk clothesline hits a tope onto ace so you know they're getting you know getting as exciting as the as the match uh goes down the stretch whitmer hits the exploder on punk and gets two um even though he definitely definitely was not the legal man there um uh then whitmer and jacobs hit the doomsday rana on punk and get the pin so i will say i was excited that they won with that move <laughs> because you know we did complain about two straight shows where they hit that move and it was the best spot of the match and they kept going um but um it was surprising that punk took the fall i have to say um you know given that you know why wouldn't days take the fall they're not doing anything with him but you know good for him um i thought that the i thought that you know, like I said, the crowd wasn't so hot for it. I thought there were a lot of boring parts, and it wasn't the smoothest. I thought it was just okay, but the uh, the finishing sequence I thought was actually very good, but it was so short that I don't think that really changed my general opinion of the match itself. It was okay.
0: Uh, I, it's one. This is one of those matches where I agree with your review a lot, but I actually – I liked it a little bit more. I thought this ended up being – like a low good like a 3 3 and a quarter star very like a low good match but i would say for the first half i was kind of bored by this match and i was thinking man i'm this is uh- I'm really not enjoying this match, but I felt like right at the point, basically when Jimmy Jacobs started being in, in peril and getting beaten up and taking moves, like you said, like the big giant swing drop kick and stuff like that. I felt from that point on, the match was significantly better and it picked up enough that by the end, I was like, Oh, that was an enjoyable tag. But that first half is about as boring as this era of ring of honor gets for this level of talent. It it just, there's nothing really going on. And, there is an interesting story You they kind of try to tell before the match, but they don't really tell it in the match, which is before the match, Jimmy Jacobs shakes hands with Ace and Punk, and Whitmer's not happy that Jimmy is doing that. He's like, don't do that. And Punk and BJ then shove each other, which turns into this like Ace Steel-BJ brawl that sees Punk shove Jimmy away when Jimmy's trying to help out his partner. And it, it, in that, that little opening pre-match segment, it is – giving you some real storytelling because it makes sense where in recent months, at the end of uh, 2004, you know, Jimmy Jacobs was almost like an unofficial member of the Second City Saints in their feud against Generation Next. He would team with them in a couple of big tag matches and stuff like that. So it makes sense that he's friends with them. But B.J. Whitmer has all that history with the privacy feud where he can't stand Punk and Steel. But yet in the match itself, they don't really tell that story. That's the that, that's story that's basically told before the match and then after the match, basically. But... The match itself, again, yeah, it kind of boring. The first half is boring. So, how much I think people will like this match depends on how much you think the second half redeems. And I think I felt like the second half redeemed it a bit more, maybe, than you felt it did. Uh, I agree with you. It's nice to finally see uh, Jacobs and uh, BJ win with the Doomsday Rana instead of just tossing out in the middle of the match as a random near fall because clearly that's like the coolest move they've got. And, yeah, Punk does – you would expect a steal to lose. Punk does the direct job and he does it for Jimmy Jacobs and I wonder if that was a punk choice or not because uh, one of I, I, I would les-
1: think it would have to be, that, 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 that kind of thing. Just my hunch but I don't know.
0: One of our great listeners, Michael Laney, he posted on Twitter to me like when I announced we were doing the show tonight that he was thinking that maybe – punk you know really wanted to do this for uh jimmy because he he kind of got the impression from listening to punk's commentary in different indies and stuff that uh that punk always kind of had a soft spot for jimmy maybe the way we've heard jimmy rave said that punk always looked out for him so i don't know if at this point punk knew he was leaving it but if he did you could kind of see maybe punk even saying to gabe like could I put over Jimmy, you know, tonight, you know, could I, especially knowing that punk's going to win the world title so that, you know, it's not like he, he needs a big win on the way out here. And also like, you can also get a bit more of that too with, um, I failed to mention this during the opening match with punk on commentary, Roderick strong and Alex Shelley, um, punk says something to the effect of like Roderick Strong's really improved and I'd really like to wrestle him and he ends up wrestling him very shortly after this show so like I wonder if punk was even almost calling his shots to Gabe knowing that he was leaving being like I'd like to you know I'd like to put over Jimmy I'd like to have this feud with Rave I'd like maybe maybe he didn't know what he was going to leave when he started the feud with Rave but even like hey could I wrestle Roderick Strong maybe that's a Gabe idea because definitely Gabe was trying hard to put Strong over by this point but like I definitely could see also punk thinking I'd like to do a couple little things on the way out. But um yeah, match was solid by the end and but definitely not the biggest uh not the best use of this talent in some ways cuz I like some of these guys quite a bit, you know, but uh that's not so after the match um after some jawing, BJ offers handshakes, and both Punk and Ace take him up on it. So we've basically ended the BJ Whitmer-Punk feud, even though we we so we actually did that months and months ago. But I guess we've ended the bad blood here. Uh, the champs then head to the back, and then out comes Prince Nana and Jade Chung. Nana has a mic, and he calls Punk the biggest loser he's seen in his life. He says, people have called Punk the Triple H of Ring of Honor. Then Nana says, I think you're going to be great friends with Triple H. When-. No, actually, he doesn't say that part. Uh Nana then talks about Rave beating Punk in Chicago and going after his tattoos before saying Punk still hasn't beaten Jimmy Rave. Nana says I it gives Punk one last chance to give up on the Ray feud, save the beaten beatings, but it's all a ruse as Rave just sneaks up from behind. He attacks Punk. Ace of Punk's Ring of Honor school students brawl with Nana's random entourage of people, which I assume it were uh students from uh Les Thatcher's Heartland Wrestling uh Federation that was in Ran Ran, Ohio. Um Jade Chung helps Rave attack Punk until Daisy Hayes and Matt Seidel run in for the save. Seidel ends up going for a big drop, a big top rope dive into everyone on the floor. Everyone keeps brawling. Even Nana lands a couple shots on Punk. Eventually, though, we're just left with Seidel and Rave in the ring, and we get Jimmy Rave defeating Matt Seidel via pinfall in 12 minutes, 35 seconds with the Rave Clash. Um, So this is a match... I thought, I, I enjoyed this match a fair bit. I thought this was a good match, but it's not a great match, but I would, the way I would put this match is, it's a match more to be appreciated than loved, because it's a very smart match. I think it accomplishes, I think this is a match where if you're the booker, you love this match, because it, it accomplishes basically all its goals, where, um, I think this is a good example of – this is one probably the first time Jimmy Rave really got to lead a match in Ring of Honor where he's the veteran. You can really see he's kind of dictating the match. It's a lengthier match. And also I think it's a great example of Jimmy Rave's – what he has stated his philosophy of working as a heel is, which is to not do much of the flashy stuff, leave that for the face. Because this match is – um You know, he lets Seidel have a bunch, uh, a nice little bit of offense right at the start, flashy stuff. Then he kind of slows the match down, really controls it. He always lets Seidel get little comebacks here or there. And then the final few minutes, Seidel really gets to run wild again until Rave gets the clean win. And I feel like it's a match where it's just really smartly done. Where he, I could see, like, if you think of what the goals, I mean, um, Ray probably had for this match from the Booker and everything, which is he has to be a heel, but he also has to win clean. He does both those things. He, he he jaws with the crown, heals it up a bit, and I think he does an eye poke or something, but he also wins definitively, cleanly. And then you look at this thing where Seidel was just starting to gain a toehold in Ring of Honor, so he has to lose clean as the face, but you, you want to give him enough where... He doesn't look like he was squashed, where he kind of impresses, and I think they accomplish that in the match. You, um, also want to make a match again, where if you, if you're rave, you're wanting to not be flashy, but still have an entertaining match. It accomplishes that. If you even go by the logic of a mid-card match should be good, but not be something that the top matches can't, will have a hard time topping. Again, I think it's that kind of like three and a quarter star match where you go, Oh, you know, this is good, but it's not gonna, burn out the audience. I think it's it, it's a very satisfying, smartly worked match, even right down to Jimmy Rave spends most of the match working over on um, Matt Seidel's midsection, which is really smart because Matt Seidel's offense is very athletic at, you know, based around jumping and flying and stuff. So... A lot of workers, I think, would work on Seidel's leg going, well, that makes sense, except it doesn't make sense if you know Seidel has to make a comeback at the in the final minutes. The nice thing about Rave working over Seidel's midsection, they get into it in a very organic way where Seidel comes off the top and Rave catches him with a knee to the midsection. So it's not like, well, why wouldn't he work on his legs? You go, well, no, he's working on the midsection because it, a, a big m- move organically happened that kind of opened up that injury. But then by working over the the um, the midsection, when it's time for um Sidel to have the, the comeback, he's not having to ignore any of his selling. He can hit all his big moves and his legs are fine. And yeah, and I also want to make, even though I think this match is more methodical than some Ring of Honor matches, I also don't want to make it sound like like there's not big spots because there's a big near fall on the Here It Is driver from Matt Sidell where the crowd buys he could win. Um, there, he does the moonsault belly to belly, which is still just a crazy spot even all these years later. And overall, yeah, this is just an outright good little, very smartly worked mid card match I thought
1: yeah um this is one of those matches where i th- I had a much stronger positive reaction than you do you not that I think it's like so much better than you said it was like I don't think it's a great match, but I thought the the level of good that it was was a bigger deal I guess than what you said because I guess it's all about expectations like you were mentioning earlier, your expectations you know like you like you were disappointed a little bit in Shelley versus strong um and my sort of feeling is. Maybe it's because, like, this is an era of ROH that I feel like I remember very well. So if I don't remember a match that well, my general feeling is, oh, you know, it probably wasn't that good, you know? And so if I don't remember a match and I'm like, oh, wow, that's better than I remember, then it really is impressive to me. Like, if you look at Matt Seidel versus Jimmy Rave in the context of May 2005 ROH, you know, we know that Jimmy Rave is good, and he's had good matches against um, top guys in ROH. But has Jimmy Rave ever had a really good mid card match in ROH, or even had the chance to at
0: this point? Uh, Not to this point. And again, yeah. like has he ever had the chance to really like be the veteran and like the more pushed guy yeah. in a lengthy match in Ring of Honor? Like, what's the other example? Like, he won a match against Slim J that was probably under ten minutes, like a year before, a year and a half before this, and that wasn't this. You know.
1: Right. And then Matt Seidel has not had a chance to do much of anything in ROH yet at this point. And yet they follow the tag title match with one of the biggest stars in the company and the tag team champions. And they get much more heat than them and have a much more entertaining match. Like to me, that's very impressive. You know, to me, that's like, damn, this match really overachieved. That's how I felt about this match. It was, you know, nothing that you said about it, I disagree with in terms of like the, the strengths and the weaknesses. But... I I do feel like the like just that like they they impressed. Like they did a really good job and did better than you could have asked for in the position they were given. And they to me they had one of the best matches on the show. I would say you know they they might have had you know this this I don't know this was better than anything on the undercard so far except for the opener probably to me. Um and, uh, you know, I, I think that just it was just it was quite good. Like they it was fast. like I, they had a very hot start because they they started in one of those like, you know, ECW style, like we're going to transition with an angle right from one match into another. So that allowed them to have a hot and heavy start. And I was like, let's see if they can keep this momentum because the last match really, you know, the crowd really died in the middle. And that does not happen here. They really do keep the momentum, you know you know Seidel has the early advantage, but Rave cuts him off, and when Rave is doing his um, his healing on Seidel, the crowd is just really into it, you know, and they do all the great little heel stuff, Nana holding rave 's arm during an abdominal stretch, and Jade Chung distracting the ref, and then the ref gets to kick nana 's hand away, get, leading to some near falls by Seidel, and um, you know just all that stuff, and Seidel, like you said, gets to do some big moves. And some, some dives and the here it is driver for the big near fall. And, you know, he get and like, they get Daisy Hayes involved more than ever, right? Sadell's telling Hayes to watch Nana while he goes to the top rope and Nana yells, watch me! Like, which I thought was <laughs> very funny. I love Nana. I mean, yeah. like, just, he's, he's so good. Um. Um, but then Rave catches him on his shoulder and just drops him over the turnbuckle, rib first, like just some really cool spots. And you know, you know, throwing him against the guardrail on the on the outside. I like that. Um, Rave goes for the Pepsi plunge, you know, just trying to you know doing this whole stick where he steals his competitors' moves. Um, but Seidel reverses into the moonsaw, belly to belly, and um, the crowd yells bullshit. Um, when, uh, when Rave kicks out, and I thought that was actually maybe even the best near fall, and, the, and you hear one fan yell, that's why we hate you, Sinclair! After he doesn't count the three for Seidel there. Um, and then, um, you know, Rave eventually gets the Rave Clash for the win, and I just, I just thought – I was very impressed with how they kept the heat and momentum from that pre-match brawl because I just didn't expect it. I I just – based on everything they've done so far, you know, not that I don't think they're good enough, but their positions in the company at this point made this surprising to me. So I guess that's why I liked it more than you.
0: I I still liked it quite a bit. Maybe I'm kind of underrating because I I would say this is my – without giving away what I think of other matches, I would say this is my third favorite match on the entire show. Like – I, yeah, that's I, I pretty enjoyed
1: good. quite a bit. <laughs> on an r third b having the third best match on an ROH show in 2005, that's pretty damn good.
0: Yeah. And and yeah, it's just – uh, I, I think this would be a great match for people to watch if you want to learn how to like be a heel and how much offense to give a babyface that's working underneath you and like when. Because I think Rave really does a good job of giving – Side out like, really the perfect amount of offense where he gets a flurry at the start, a big run at the end, and then he just lets him up for the perfect little quick comebacks throughout the match while kind of controlling it. I think he does a really good job of that. It's a really good example of that. And, again, going to uh, – Gabe was good at, like, the city-to-city booking. You know, the last Dayton show, we had the great um, Jack Evans tag with Joe on the other side where Joe beats the crap out of Evans, and there's a lot of comedy. So we get another Evans-Joe match of a sort here, and likewise – at the start of this match we get a picture in picture of um rave giving uh sidell the styles clash from the last time they were in Dayton so gabe was always you know even though they he wasn't feuding with matt sidell jimmy rave wasn't like gabe would still book little things like that from city to city to be like well last time we were dating this happened so we'll play that up again for the live crowd um rave was also ended up bleeding from the mouth during this match a bit i don't know what Busted them open, but something did. And uh, another thing I noticed in this match too was, uh, um, uh, well, I was gonna say, um, there, there was a thing in this match where, oh, it's right at the end. I noticed Jimmy Rave does this occasionally. I actually kind of like this a fair bit, where, um. He'll ha- he'll go for uh, one of his finishers and he'll have the other wrestler avoid the finisher and then he'll hit like one move to counter the counter and then hit the finisher and win. Like he does these little fake outs where it's not like, oh, he countered and then we'll come back to the finisher five minutes later. It's like I'll go for my finisher. You'll get out of it. I'll get right back to it and it'll be it'll still be the finisher within like that 20 seconds. But just to fake out the crowd just a little bit and I actually – I think that's a cool thing that I think more wrestlers could do. It's It's a neat little swerve I like. But – uh, next up, we get Colt Cabana and Doug Williams defeating Chad Collier and Nigel McGuinness in 1444 when Colt pins Nigel with a quick cradle counter to Nigel's rebound schoolboy, where he was doing, this is something he would do early on, the rebound lariat, but he would do it as schoolboy instead. Uh, Colt counters it into a cradle. Uh, Matt, four really good, uh, wrestlers in this match, and it's always a pleasure to, uh, see Doug Williams when he gets to do Ring of Honor. Um, I definitely have thoughts about this match. What did you think about this match?
1: Oh, man, I, mean, I want to hear your thoughts. I, I, um, so was I excited to see Chad Collier back? You know, maybe kind of. Was I excited to see Doug Williams back? Yes, very, very much so. Um, so my thoughts, I mean, overall, and I'll get to some more specifics, but my thoughts overall was this, this match didn't have specific particularly high ambitions and it didn't achieve great heights, but, I think it did what they were setting out to do which was show off the personalities continue the uh cabana and um and Nigel feud and have some entertaining stuff along the way so I thought it worked on that level um you know Doug and Nigel really fun doing their mat work um by the way punk is back on commentary and he says that Nana and Raved escaped via helicopter and I wonder <laughs> I wonder how far that helicopter traveled um but um but yeah, Nigel and Doug had a lot of fun doing their mat work. The Doug, uh, mat work with Collier, not quite as fun, but still entertaining. Um, and Caban is on the outside getting very excited by all of Doug Williams maneuvers, and I enjoyed that. There was one point where Doug tied up both Collier and Nigel's legs with starfishes. Like, like kind of, and like, you know, almost, you know that, like, we're like the rowboat kind of situation. Yeah. But like they um but he does he does it all by himself and and uses his legs to keep them apart while kicking their heads down. And I, I just wrote Impressively Silly. Um <laughs> then Cabana runs in and they literally wrestle circles around um around Nigel, doing like moves on each of his limbs, or maybe it was Collier actually. Um Um and I, there's even one spot where Nigel is doing some like flexing and posing to intimidate Cabana. Um which is, you know, just you know nigel starting to you know feel more comfortable being a heel there um and nigel does like this big back elbow um in the match and then goes now i'm gonna break his wrist um and um so they're doing a decent amount of comedy you know nigel holds i mean cabana holds nigel's legs together while williams tips him over um the one thing i will say is there was already a comedy match on this show so you know maybe you don't need quite so much comedy maybe they could have been a little bit more serious but you know Colt's gonna do what he's gonna do and and it's not like they weren't game for it and it's not like they didn't do a good job um um but yeah so so they they do you know they do their you know fun stuff collier and nigel get the heat on williams for a while they do some hammer locks some key locks um some other things made of metal locks um <laughs> um you know, I, I guess there's a story here that Nigel and Collier are kind of like they're miscommunicating a bit. You know, like, like they're not running as a well-oiled machine. Williams escapes like a gut, a gut red suplex, attacks Collier and is able to tag Cabana, but the ref misses the tag. But, you know, Doug makes it after not long after that. And Cabana runs wild, hits a bunch of lariats against both heels and a bunch of dusty roads elbows. And he goes for a double noggin knocker, but the heels escape. But Cabana hits them both with the springboard moonsault. Um, Nigel and Collier hit a double wrist lock takedown on uh, Cabana, and he does his head – Nigel does his headstand, but Williams holds him, allowing Colt to battering Ram Collier into him, into the upside down Nigel. I thought that was a good spot. Probably doesn't make much sense to do the upside down thing in, in a tag team match unless one of the – both guys are kind of incapacitated. Um, Cabana actually hits a frog splash on Nigel for two, and then Nigel gets him with that arm submission. No, I mean that <laughs> arm submission
0: that one even punk is now like is that arm submission he doesn't like you too punk you too my brother
1: i mean that's what it's called i'm <laughs> telling you um so doug goes up top he breaks it up with the bomb scare and collier tries to stop him but not for long and collier and doug fight on the outside and then back in the ring nigel and cabana do the spot that you described and cabana gets the pin um yeah you know again didn't reach great heights didn't attempt to reach great heights um so i was okay with it
0: i thought this match was better than average but disappointing and i think you put it into words in a way that i couldn't like a better way which is this match didn't feel like it had high ambitions and it and it you know, like it's it's four guys that I'm – it goes back to the thing of I have really high expectations for a lot of these wrestlers and for this promotion in general by this point. And it's four guys I really like. And it's one of those matches where I honestly feel like if you took any combination of these four and put them in a singles match on this night, they would have had a better match. Like any two of these four guys I think could have potentially had a match that would have been better than this. And this was not a bad match. I think it was, it was better than average, but I wouldn't even say – it was probably up to this point, other than the Matt striker squash, maybe my least favorite match on the show so far. It, you know, it is more of this. It's what you'd expect. It's a blend of, you know, European style mat work and comedy and, you know, chain wrestling. And it's enjoyable, but it doesn't really, again, like you said, doesn't really have an ambition. It doesn't really build or go anywhere. It's just kind of filling their slot on the card. And I think one thing I've learned watching some of these these tags is I feel like guy he's all four of these guys, but especially guys like you know um Doug Williams and Chad Collier. I think these kind of matches where you put four grapplers together. I don't think they're well I, – I would rather see them in singles than tags because I think when you do matches that are heavy on the mat work, you build kind of a momentum when you work the same guy for like 10, 15 minutes. And I feel like in tag matches, when you have to tag in and out, you kind of break up that momentum a lot. I have to kind of start from scratch where for some reason when you're just doing more action-oriented tag matches, I feel like you don't break up the momentum with tags as much where – I'd see some of the sequences on the mat, and I feel like, oh, these two are just really getting going into a groove, and that's, you know, it's time for one of them to tag out, and then it kind of starts from square one again. And I think that I think that's part of my problem with this match. Again, even though I would say, going back to my thing I said earlier, Ring of Honor was so good at this point, where even the match I would say is disappointing, I would still say is a better than average match that I enjoyed and did not was not bored by and had entered was entertained by, but. It, it, it's i really like all four of these guys so i had higher expectations when i saw this match on paper yeah I, uh, i'll go on that
1: i was gonna say i guess where i would differ with you here is that i feel like this match is very much in line with what nigel and cabana were doing right like they were going for a very specific type of match so they weren't gonna go for the you know you know for that epic great tag team match that you might think of you know this was Kind of what the you know, just like this was the style they were doing—that comedy grounded thing—and I, I don't know if I agree that like, like Cabana and Collier as a singles match would have been better than this on this night. I think they could have. Uh, it depends uh, on the style that they were trying to do, and I just don't think this is the style that Cabana was looking to do at this point.
0: Also, I think maybe our disagreement on this goes to our disagreement on the last show where I think I liked the second Nigel Colt match from Manhattan Mayhem a bit more than you. So I kind of saw this as more of like an inferior version of that. Like, like it's for you. I think you, you're almost getting a little fatigued, but maybe them doing the same kind of match overall, especially like you said on a show that already had comedy. For me, I was almost like, I like this kind of match. But I feel like we've seen better versions of this recently. And I'm curious
1: to see what their match is like on the uh, Chicago show that we're going to review next.
0: It, it, yeah, me too. Uh, one thing I want to mention on commentary, Matt, did you notice at one point, um, you know, Doug Williams does the bomb scare, which is his big top rope double, uh, fo- top rope flying knee. And, um punk says that moves called the bomb score and that's the most politically incorrect thing you can say matt (laughs) i I don't think that's the most politically incorrect thing cm punk said on this show because he said freaky retard strength And and made
1: fun of a colorblind person
0: yeah, like most shows on Ring of Honor have something more in th- offensive than the words bomb scare. <laughs>
1: no, so, I don't I don't think I think I mean I guess what's politically incorrect in two thousand and five is different from what's politically yeah. incorrect in twenty twenty one, is guess I guess is what I would say to that.
0: Um, the other thing I, I also thought watching this match was Ring of Honor really missed out on having a Chad Call Your James Gibson tag team just for the promos. Like I would yes. have loved to have seen a Chad Call Your James Gibson backstage promo. Together, but anyway, match ends. After the match, everyone shakes hands. Although Nigel, you can tell he's a little testy, a little unhappy. So again, still doing that kind of lingering, but not to an outright hated feud between him and Colt yet. And that brings us to the semi-main event, the Ring of Honor World Title match. Austin Aries successfully defends the title when he defeats James Gibson by pinfall in 23 minutes 44 seconds. When he fell forwards as Gibson held him in a choke on the uh, when he held him the guillotine choke on the, when they were staying on the turnbuckles, Austin Aries falls forward. Um, yeah, so this is a, obviously a rematch from their draw. Um, and I this is this is another match where. I thought it was good, but a little disappointing. I I thought this was like a three and a half star match. Maybe I enjoyed this match, but I do not think it was good as their previous match. Um, I, I felt like this one, they did a more methodical pace, and I like, and maybe tried to go for a bit more of an epic match with bigger moves in in key moments, and I like methodical matches, and I like limb work matches, and this is a match where, you know, Aries spends a lot of the match working on Gibson's arm, but I, I felt like this was one of those matches where the payoff wasn't quite wor- worth how much they went to more of the limb work and the methodical stuff early on, especially because you know, we're both on this show on through the years. We're big fans of James Gibson. I think one of the things we've singled him out for is how good his selling is. And this is a rare match where I have a little. F- little bit of quibbles with a selling because they Aries works a lot his arm a lot in this match, and then the end of the match is him going for the guillotine choke with the arm and going for the tiger driver, you know, and it's all kind of forgotten about at the end, and it doesn't play into the finish or even any of the final minutes of the match really at all. And likewise, there's a couple of moments in this match where. um um, where Gibson does one of the highlights of the match: this big front flip dive onto Aries into the front row, and likewise he kicks out of the 450 later in the match. And both times, um, the guy he the guy who took the move is like fighting back. I would say like with fairly quickly afterwards, maybe not going on sustained offense. But again, in James Gibson matches usually those are the kind of things. That our strength of his that he doesn't do stuff like that that he he knows to pay attention to selling and knows how to pay attention to the big moves but like there is a lot of good work in this match and as usual with these guys very professional work there's some big moves Um, I I I love you know the two big spots I talked about the kick out of the 450 and the flip flip drive into the crowd they get the crowd to buy in that James Gibson could win the title on this night. So they get some big near falls in this match. Um, I don't like the finish. So the finish of the match is Aries is going up top. Gibson runs, catches him, And instead of going for a suplex, even though like he's kind of got him in position for that, he puts him in his guillotine choke finisher on the turnbuckles. He holds it for a little bit and then Aries jumps off and basically just jumps off. Well, Gibson has him in the choke, Gibson lands on his back, Aries immediately covers him and gets the win, and I didn't like it for a couple of reasons. The first reason was, um, I, ca- I I don't usually like when guys do ch- submissions in the ropes, because especially in the case of a choke, it's like you're not really hurting a guy, you're just hoping you can knock him out, but you clearly know that you're it's not going to count. Like, the ref's not going to say, oh, he tapped out. Like, Aries is even waving his finger in the air, like, I'm not going to tap out but he's sitting on the turnbuckle. It's like it wouldn't be legal if he did tap out. He 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 can't lose. And then I also felt like in a match where Gibson had just kicked out of the four fifty and you know done that huge dive into the crowd, and you know they had done some big moves that just like Aries kind of falling forwards off of basically him standing on the second turnbuckle. I don't think that was a big enough move to justify not just the win, but also after this match, Gibson sells this for like a long time afterwards. He sells this like it, like it was like a death move. Like it was the double stomp cop killer where he takes a long time to get up afterwards. And uh, quite frankly, it was not the most, it wasn't even the top two or three most impressive moves in this match. So, you know, that it's a lot of my, you know, my complaints about this match. I want to make clear, I still thought this was one of the better matches on the show. Like, three and a half stars, probably Uh, there was a lot of really, um, you know, good work. Like there's all sorts of little spots. Like, um, Aries takes like basically kind of a monkey flip and he lands almost right on his head from it. Like just crazy stuff like that. Clearly they were working really hard, but again, my expectations after the last match, my la- I think their first match, I had it like just right below four stars, and I think you had it better than me. I think you had it, pro- you said it was outright great. I was like right below, and I thought looking at this match, it- I knew it was going to have a finish. I thought they're definitely going to top it, and I think it was rather than being like one step above their first match, I thought it was one step below. But I have a feeling a lot of people will disagree with me on that Matt. Are you one of the people that disagree with me?
1: I'm noticing a trend on this show, which is just generally that I liked it more than you. Um, yeah, no, I um, yeah, I did like the first Gibson and and uh, Aries match more than you did, and I liked this one more than that one, and. I know a lot of people don't agree with me on that. The reason I like this match more is because I don't think it had some of the overindulgences that I thought that one had that annoyed me. Specifically, that brain buster cut sequence that they had in the first match where they just like – you know, one guy hit a brain buster. They held on. The other guy hit a brain buster. They held on. That didn't really sit well with me. And this one didn't do that. Uh, but it did do most of the stuff that that one did well. You know, the arm work, Gibson's great selling of the arm, and yes, he does go for the guillotine at the end, but it doesn't succeed, you know, which is, you know, says something, um, you know, but some great spots, too. I, you know, I also made note of that very scary Austin Aries, um, monkey flip landing, which, you know, I, I wonder if that was even intentional. Like, I, you know, that, that seemed very dangerous when I, when I looked at it. Luckily, he was, seemed, he seemed fine, as far as I can tell, but, um, you know, and just some of the, like, you know, cool spots like Gibson hitting Ares in the eye with his left elbow, then immediately dropping to the mat in pain because he hit him with the bad elbow. You know, little little things like that that I think a lot of people wouldn't do. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, which I, you know, I, I really like the spot where Gibson um, puts, uh, crotches Ares on the guardrail, clotheslines him off the guardrail into the crowd, and does a somersault dive from the top rope onto Ares in the crowd. I really like that spot. um because what had happened was, um, um Gibson had gone for the tiger driver on the floor and Aries reversed that into a brain buster attempt and Gibson reversed that and crotched him on the guardrail. So they really got to that spot pretty organically, which I think is always fun. Um you know, I, I really did like how they were able to get the crowd to really get to the fever pitch level of like you said believing that gibson could win the title on this night because you know that's not always true where somebody really believes that or a crowd really believes a title change could happen and i think they really thought that gibson was going to win like i think there were a few minutes where they really really thought that um when gibson does the spinning ddt into the choke and aries escaped and gibson hit the tiger driver the crowd just went insane for that near fall um you know and then um the choke on the top rope. I, I agree with you in a lot of ways. I think there's, you know, there's other ways you could explain it. Like um, Gibson was just desperate and he wanted to make Aries pass out so they could fall off the top rope together. Um, you know, as opposed to thinking that he was going to tap on the top rope. You know, of course, you can argue then. Well, you get the five count, so then you get just get disqualified, right? So it still doesn't make yeah. sense.
0: Like, can you make a guy pass out in five seconds? Because if the ref's doing his job, you only have five seconds to do it. Right.
1: But I guess you could also argue that any wrestler who's ever watched another match will know that a referee never disqualifies somebody in a title match <laughs> or something like that. So they could they could also make that argument. Um, I do agree with you that Aries probably should have hit one more move after coming off the top. I think they wanted that real surprise, sudden thing. Working for it, but I think if Aries had just like he knocked he knocked Gibson off the top, you know, from the choke, you know, did almost like that sidewalk slam or spinebuster style dive off the rope. If Aries had just maybe like gone up one more time and hit another four fifty, that would have put the the exclamation point on it and made the the ending more convincing. Um, I didn't so so yeah so that takes down a little bit for me. I didn't think this is like all time great ROH title match or anything but i did think it was a bit better than the first one and i thought it was a great match
0: i agree about the the last move cuz like don't get me wrong like even though i didn't like the finish i really like that they were trying to do a different kind of finish like I, like i appreciate the ambition there it just in a there were some really big near falls and moments in this match and it it was kind of hard for me to swallow that being the finish after those moves but I, I I actually really liked that they were trying something different though right but, right I chalk it up to them they just it was like they were like let's go for it and yeah it didn't work for
1: everybody and that's okay
0: So, a live report from our friend Donnie, who said, At the time, I wasn't too impressed with Austin Aries, but looking back, it was just that I hadn't seen the right matches yet. During the early slow portions of the title match, several fans tried to get some dumb chants going, but was quickly snuffed out by other audience members. See, that's one of those things where you maybe hear in the crowd that you don't hear on tape, because I didn't notice anyone turning on this match, like... Or even people trying to shout down other people. A lot of maybe times, just, a
1: lot of times in crowds, it's like it's it's sort of like the people that you just happen to be sitting near your pocket. You, yeah, yeah, give you a different impression of the crowd than the overall crowd is actually expressing. You know,
0: because they definitely were slower and more methodical in the early going, but I felt like the crowd maybe not super loud, but was with them. And as we've mentioned, they go crazy for some of those near falls at the end, like buying it completely thinking they're about to see a title change so and oh oh, the other thing i thought was funny was gibson does the moonsault again and you know cm punk on commentary even brings up you know he did that the last time they faced each other that he hadn't done the moonsault in years when he did it then i thought it was kind of funny where both times he does the moonsault in these aries matches and they mentioned he's never done it he hasn't done in years and both times Ares avoids the moonsault. Like, I felt like, I kind of felt bad for Like, he should have hit one of the two then. When they're really selling, like, oh, he's pulling out this big movie. He never does anymore. And both times, Ares just gets out of the way. Doesn't yeah. hit. I feel
1: like, um, I feel like there's, Like, there's two different ways that somebody, quote, can do a moonsault. There are wrestlers who can do a cool looking backflip off, backflip off the top rope. And that's one way to do a moonsault. Then there are wrestlers who can actually, like, safely connect with someone while doing a backflip, flap off the top rope. And those are the ones who actually do moonsaults kind of often. (laughs) Like, Kurt Angle, like Kurt Angle, if you notice, only on a few occasions did he actually hit a moonsault. And the times that he did hit it, I don't know, they didn't always look the
0: safest. (laughs) No yeah, like very splayed out on like like usually yeah, like there there's a difference between being able to do like a, a flip in the air and being able to have like the body control to land where you want to land. And right. yeah, like like you were saying, those are two very different skills. Exactly. Um So oh the other oh, did you notice this, Matt? Like it was it was so funny. I know on a recent show you mentioned that like, oh, Gibson's finally gotten the uh he, he stopped you wearing the Confederate trunks, at least on some shows. He's got now the, the John Deere themed trunks. And so he comes out in this match with the John Deere trunks. I was like, Oh yeah. I remember Matt saying that on another show recently. Isn't that nice? And then before the match starts, a fan has a Confederate flag in the front row, Gibson grabs it and he like, he runs all around the ring and poses with it in the ring. And it's like, God damn. <laughs> that fan had to bring the God damn. We just got him to stop wearing it. And now you bring him the flag. It's like, don't, don't you know the man has a problem? <laughs> don't enable him! Like, God damn it, boys! Oh man!
1: But, um, yeah, and I don't think he's done wearing those Confederate flag trunks. No, either. no, no. But
0: even even the show where he's wearing the John Deere trunks still gets that Confederate flag in there. But um, so the, after the match, you know, his trainer comes in the ring, Gibson, and they do a long like like it really felt like they were trying to milk the crowd to get another reaction like the one that brought gibson nearly to tears on the the last dayton show and they end up getting a good reaction but it did feel almost like that whole hogan style you're really trying to milk the crowd for this reaction and it's not organic like the last one was but clearly dayton really did love them some james gibson and did give him a very nice ovation but it did feel like they were really pushing for it this time yeah it uh, happens <laughs> Yeah. So next we go backstage as Dave Prezak is joined by Samoa Joe as they set up they say they're setting up the cage for tonight's main event. Uh, Joe says the finish tonight was ironic. He says that he's holding the, the title that he once discredited, but he says now it's a whole new game because he, he notes that when the Ring of Honor, when I won the Ring of Honor world title, it only meant something after I put my hands on it. He says the pure title doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot to most fans, but when I hold it, it'll mean everything to everybody. Uh, Joe pro- proclaims that the pro- pure title will be the only title that means anything in Ring of Honor at this point. Elk shelley barges in and he says i don't mean to be the c in an a b conversation but i need a tag partner against generation next tomorrow and i know that you and me joe both have problems with generation next we both like pure wrestling uh joe at this point cuts him off and says the reason he has problems with generation next is because their former leader shelley started those problems joe tells shelley to go find himself some friends and and at that point walks away shelley kind of just at this point says to himself I suppose that is what I could do, isn't it? So, again, I think we're starting to hint at the idea of everyone's rejecting Shelley and Shelley's getting this idea that he's going to need to find some friends, whether they're good people or not. And, uh, Matt, I thought the thing that I'd ask you, which is interesting, which is I did like, like we mentioned before when when on the last show where – joe wins the pure title how it's kind of hypocritical that joe's going for the pure title when he spent so much time saying that the pure title meant nothing so i appreciate the attention to detail where joe addresses that and acknowledges it but it is kind of weird where like joe's talking about you know i'm gonna make this title mean more than any other title it's kind of hard to say that when you lost two times to the current world champion in recent months but i still at least appreciate the idea that that joe is saying like look yeah this pure title doesn't mean much, yeah, I called it down, but basically, I make titles mean something
1: It's a good gimmick, and he Joe does you know try to write that wrong because he is going to wrestle Ares for the pure title in a future show, so there's also that um but I, you know, funnily enough, I don't think Joe is the one that makes the pure title special. I think it is his successor that does so. Yeah. Um, now it is, uh, one thing I did like is that Joe said that the finish to the, t- the match tonight was ironic because I take, you know, for a second it sounded like he was saying it like as a hipster. Like, yeah, I just lost ironically. You know, it was just, I was just, you know, I, I, you know, that was just, that was just meant to be kind of like irony, I you did, know, for the kids.
0: I did it for a goof. Yeah.
1: which <laughs> <laughs> you know, that happens in wrestling. Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan. <laughs>
0: Should have done the finger poke of of Doom too here, but um, next we cut to the building for a quick shot of the cage being set up, followed by a homicide da- Brian Danielson video highlight package for like the whole feud, using the classic early Ring of Honor techno music. I just wrote that in all capitals on my notes and then wrote yes, and it ends with them locking up with someone playing the sound of a gunshot. So th- again, this was the kind of thing Ring of you know, it's definitely indie level production, but it's the kind of thing ring of honor wasn't even really attempting very often or at all at this point. So it was interesting to see, you know, them taking the little extra time and care to make something like that. Um, And that brings us to the best-of-five series steel cage match. This is the match five. Whoever wins this wins the series. Brian Danielson defeats Homicide to win the series three matches to two. He wins via pinfall in 17 minutes, eight seconds, winning after an airplane spin. That's right. You heard it right. Brian Danielson does one of the longest airplane spins we've seen. Then he directly gets the pin. So, Matt, before I get your thoughts, I'll go to Ronnie's thoughts live. He wrote... How long He remembers how long it took to set up the cage. It took such a long time, probably close to half an hour. I remember the ring crew having a lot of trouble setting it up, almost as if it was missing pieces or it was broken or they just didn't know what they were doing. I was sitting to the right of the hard cam, which is the same side as the door. The door hinge of the door looked like it was broken or missing a pin or something, so the crew just ratchet-strapped the top of the door. This meant that the door just didn't swing smoothly or like a normal door would. I don't remember it being an issue in the match or if anyone who wasn't sitting on that side even could tell, but it was just something weird and funny that I remember. I also remember some spot in the match with a chair and Brian Danielson just kind of throwing it to the side, the chair getting stuck in the cage and the crowd popping for it. I think this was a good match, but the cage issues I remember far more than the match. So um, definitely that chair spot was also funny where it gets thrown and it gets stuck in the thing. But Matt – this is the end of the series, so five. We've seen these guys wrestle. This is seven times we've seen these guys wrestle in like the last year of Ring of Honor. This is how it all wraps up for now. Big main event, big cage match. What do you think?
1: Well, first of all, you know, so one of, one of the things that ROH did because it's not like they ever hung the cage, you know, from the from the rat roof like or from like the you know the scaffolding like WWE does. Um, so when they would do shows with cage matches they would not have intermission until they set up the cage. So I think that's why they would do these shows where they had two matches after the, after the cage was set up because it's like you're going to make the wait, crowd wait so long, go through an intermission just for one match.
0: Yeah. And,
1: because that is kind of weird, right?
0: Now And that's what they do on this show. It's, it's, the, it's one match after, intermission, after a half an hour intermission, I guess.
1: And also on the next show. And so I went to a lot of ROH shows through the years, and I can only remember two ROH shows with cage matches. And they were Steel Cage Warfare in December 2005 and um, Cage of Death in, in July 2006. And, you know, they did the same thing where they had an intermission just at the very end when they set up the cage. But at least on those shows, those were super long main events, like kind of epic. And so it's like you didn't feel like you were waiting around for something that was like quick, you know? Mm hmm. Um, this wasn't very long, so I can only imagine it being kind of an annoying thing to sit through. Um, as far as the match, though, I guess I'll do—you know—I'll do my main event play-by-play play here. So, first of all, um, Homicide is wearing jorts, which is not his typical look, and they said that um, he's doing it as a tribute to FMW. Which <laughs> uh, can you explain that to me?
0: Uh. I God, I I should remember. Sounds WWE like better, no. <laughs> I assume a wrestler. I forget which wrestler wore jorts. I assume. I'm assuming someone wore jorts. They didn't say you wrestler. Say though. It, it, they just it, it, said
1: they said it was a tribute to like the promotion, which is. I mean, I somebody somebody will be able to explain this to us, I'm sure. Um, but it was not the best look for him. Um, don't get mad at me, homicide. Um, but um, Danielson. This is one of his two shows where he comes out to the Imperial March as instead of uh, Self-Esteem by Offspring, right? They still do the, you know, beginning of America the Beautiful and then he goes right into
0: – Actually, they do the na-na-na from The Start of Self-Esteem too. Oh, that's right. I think So they give you like a little taste of that but then, yeah, they cut to the Imperial March.
1: Yeah, and um, – you don't hear it for very long because Homicide jumps him in the aisle and forks him right away. And you barely see what's happening in the aisle because, you know, spotlights are not their forte. Um and that's not good. But eventually they it gets better when they move to ringside. And Danielson blades immediately, like very first spot of the match he blades. And the guy the Homicide is forking him around ringside and a guy is chanting, Use the fork and it's like, um, he is? <laughs> like what? <laughs> Like, what, what do you – it's very strange to chance to someone to do something that they're already doing. That's probably annoying. Uh, and at this point, Homicide looks at the cage and he goes, this is county jail. And And I'm just thinking like that's pretty un-American because in America, our incarceration is mass. And there's no county jail that only has two
0: guys in it. Come on. Um, <laughs> that's a very roomy cell for America. Or yeah, exactly.
1: exactly. Um, but so – Three or four minutes of Homicide beating Danielson at ringside, and they get into the cage, and the door is shut, and the bell is rung, and Homicide forks away and throws him into the cage, and not exactly a CM Punk-level blade job by Danielson, even as Homicide throws a chair at his head – and they say that the um the winner of the match is gonna wrestle Aries for the title tomorrow and the loser of the match is gonna wrestle Doug Williams. And I'm just imagining Williams sitting there watching that going like, hey, wait a minute. Um, but,
0: <laughs> but um The loser gets what he deserves, <laughs> Doug Williams. Exactly.
1: Um so but but Daniel Stin, he comes back with um with uh, you know, some steel cage ramming and chair throwing of his own And my question at this moment was, but will Danielson fork? And he answers me almost immediately, yes, he does indeed fork. He's forking away. And I like – Prasak says that Danielson using the fork makes him a, quote, versatile performer,
0: Daily anyway, commentary. For some reason, this line just made me laugh out loud. He goes, "Brian Danielson is going to use a fork for the first time in his <laughs> Ring of Honor career." Just,
1: <laughs> but he, apparently, he considers like all of, Ring of all of his life during Ring of Honor a medieval times because apparently, he only eats with his hands during his <laughs> Ring of Honor career. He has not used a fork in that entire three year period. Um, maybe chopsticks? I guess he could maybe use those. Um,
0: Spoons only for Danielson. <laughs>
1: Man, I would love to see a match where a wrestler used a spoon as a weapon. Um, but Homicide's blade job is immediately more impressive than Danielson's. I think we can both agree on that. Yes. Um, so Danielson sets up two chairs. He tries to suplex Homicide through them. Homicide reverses, suplexes Danielson. And Homicide sets up chairs in the corners of the ring, like props them in between the ropes. And then they get into a slap fight, and Danielson wins that. and whips Homicide into the buckle with the chair, and the chair falls. So Danielson takes it and runs – into homicide's head in the corner um they're definitely going fast like that's one thing i'll say about this match they they like the, a lot of matches in this night had some methodical builds this one they're kind of, they're moving you know um, um and the crowd is pop, the crowd actually pops bigger for danielson's surfboard into the chancery than they do for um some of the weapon shots which you know i guess good if, good for danielson for getting that spot over um they go onto the top rope. They get into a headbutt fight. Homicide hits the ace crusher off the top and gets a two count. And the crowd pops big for that one. Um, Homicide goes for a lariat. Danielson ducks, hits the regalplex for two. Um, so they're going pretty quick to some of the big moves. Um, and Homicide climbs to the very top of the cage. And um, at the top, Danielson tries to pull Homicide back over. like, uh, like, But Homicide bites his thumb. And Danielson just chucks Homicide backwards off the cage and he goes to the very, very, very top of the cage, snooker style, so high he's actually touching the ceiling and hits the diving headbutt off the top. And someone in the crowd yells, dangerous! So then right after that, <laughs> Gabe yells it too. Um, and there's a big ROH count and a delayed cover. So Homicide kicks out at one. Uh, and then they keep going for a while and I'm just like, wow. That top rope headbutt, I mean, the top of the cage headbutt was not even like the climax of the match. That's very strange to me. But, um, Danielson goes for the airplane spin, homicide escapes, hits a pile driver for two. Um, then homicide goes to the top of the cage, toward the top of the cage, but Danielson crotches him, hits the belly to back suplex for a two. Um, and I'm just like – at the longer the match goes after that, I'm like, man, it's a, that was a weird placement for that headbutt spot. It felt like just like a random spot in like the, the final third of the match. Like it didn't – like I don't know. It feels like that should have been later. Um, but Danielson hits a low blow uh, – excuse me, Homicide hits the low blow mule kick and lariat for two, like playing off the reborn stage two finish. Um, so Homicide pulls out brass knuckles which he used to knock out Danielson before. But Danielson ducks, hits a roaring forearm, and he gets the airplane spin, and the crowd counts along, but eventually they lose count. And he keeps going and going and going, and he goes for like a full minute, and he slows down a lot, but he keeps going and going and going and going. And after like a minute and a half or longer, Homicide slam, I mean, Danielson slams him down, gets the pin, um kind of an interesting way to end a brutal blood feud right yeah. with a air, giant long airplane spin um i thought the match was solid it was fast paced i thought it was kind of weirdly paced i still think it was one of the better matches of the series and maybe not the best one uh you know I, I enjoyed the final act of the lumberjack match probably more than anything else in the series but i think from beginning to end this is probably the most entertaining because they don't go too long definitely some weird choices though like i would not say this is a great match by any stretch but it's interesting um it's not boring at any point and um you know it is what it is i i didn't think this best of five series was particularly special but it's memorable i guess just because of the personalities involved
0: so this is where we get the flip matt i like this match more than you i not (laughs) uh, i i would give this I would say this is a great match. I would give it four stars. I wouldn't – so just getting into great. But I would say this is the best match of their five-match series. I would not – it still I don't think is as near as good as that first Danielson homicide match in 2004, which was just them wrestling without a gimmick. Maybe that tells you something about where these guys' strengths lie against each other. But um I thought this was low-grade. I, I thought this accomplished what you would want, the big – Five match series um, match to um, accomplish. It was just a lot of big dumb like big bombs, as the ki- as the kids would say. Just big, you know. They hit most of their big moves. They they. It's almost like they get like I was saying on the last show with the Jimmy Rave uh, CM Punk dog collar match. I enjoyed that match, but felt like they didn't use much of the dog collar this match felt like they went just down a checklist almost robotically and went like what do people expect from a cage match so it was like do you a big move off the top of the cage check do a couple big moves off the top turnbuckle because you can kind of balance better so like they they pull out even though they've done these sometimes before you know homicide does the top rope ace crusher's not just off the second punk i mean uh Danielson does the uh belly to back superplex you know blood they both bleed, even though neither is a great blade job, particularly like you said, Danielson, not a great blader, but hey, at least he made the effort check. They, If you want to see some plunder in there, you know, a bunch of chair spots, including that spot you mentioned where you might not expect Brian Danielson, of all people, to take a suplex through two open chairs. He does, so check, you know. Do you want to see, you know, spots you wouldn't see normally or done bigger? You get the, you know, the flying headbutt, but also even, you know, the airplane spin, which he's done before, but he does it longer than I've ever seen him do it. Check. You know, do you want to see them play off prior m- matches in the series? And as you pointed out, they play off the low blow lariat. They play off the, the, um, the brass knuckle spot where Danielson avoids it. So, and despite all of that, you know, like, it still doesn't quite feel, like this will not make my top five match of the year end list. It, it will not, it doesn't feel like an Epic, like just an all time classic. Again, it's not even my favorite match. These two have had in the last couple of years, but in terms of just in a final match of a series in a cage, it kind of just hit every note I wanted. Even if like you mentioned, I completely agree all the weird spots. It is really weird that, especially for two guys this smart, that Danielson would do a top rope headbutt, and like, within like, I would say less than 40 seconds, Homicide is up doing a pile driver to Danielson. And, and that seems like really crazy from these two guys to just brush aside. And again, like, l- not long after that, Danielson's doing the belly to back super flex or the near fall, and you would, and I would think that's all wrong, cause you would think, that that that's a normally a very impressive move, but it doesn't seem nearly impressive once you've already done a flying headbutt off the top of the cage. Like you should have put that before it to get the most out of that move, and instead, like we're supposed to buy that now after we've seen this crazy huge, you know, move that you, they've done. So that was really weird. I totally agree, and I agree that for a hated like blood feud, it was weird to see it end with a airplane spin, but. I mean the crowd loved it, and it was crazy to see an airplane spin go that long, and it was crazy, like you mentioned usually when you see airplane spins, the crowd chants along, and at some point the crowd you you say lose count I almost felt like the crowd just starts roaring like the crowd's like we're gonna stop counting just because we're too busy like just freaking out about how long this airplane spins going because you starts to you just start to hear this buzz from the crowd instead of the count and yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, but so ridiculous in a way i it, it worked for me. Um, one of my problems for this match, other than the ones we've mentioned though, is the problem a lot of ring of Arcage cage matches have, which is the camera. They just need to tear a hole in the cage to fit the heart handheld cam through because a lot of the viewing angles from the cage, you know, the cage obscures a lot and they just don't do a great job shooting through it. But I would say, you know, it's like a solid four star match. And I, I guess what we should talk about too now that we talked about the matches, Matt, I'm, I remember before we started the the, uh, the five star match series, I was excited to revisit this, and you were like, "I remember you you said I remember some of those matches weren't the greatest." And I do think looking at the five match series as a whole, yeah, you're right. I, I I would say this is the best match, and even that, it's I think this is the one match that gets to four stars. Maybe uh, I might have had one more scraping, but maybe I'm not sure. But like these two are two of my favorite wrestlers of this promotion, of this generation. And I thought they had a really great match, you know, at one of the Reborn shows in 2004.
1: I like their match at All-Star Extravaganza better than any of the ones on this series also.
0: Yeah, and and they never, they have five cracks and they never get to that level again. And part of me thinks, do you think it's just because these two maybe work better without gimmicks? Like maybe it was because they had to, or I, I also feel like, In a way, it was smart. In a way, it wasn't. I felt like the first three matches in particular of the series ran together because so much of it was about them getting into these out-of-control brawls a lot of times in the crowd, and I I think the fun of a five-match series with these gimmicks is supposed to be that every match feels way different, and I felt like the first three matches kind of blurred together to me. Like, even the submission match, you know, had the the first half of the matches, them brawling in the crowd, you know, and... Maybe that's the reason why I like this match better is because it at least felt different from all the rest. It was, you know, a flat-out big moves cage match, which none of the other matches feel that way. And even this match that felt different still had the crowd brawl—not in the crowd, but the ringside brawl at the start. Like every match had that.
1: Yeah, I think that is one of the biggest problems with it. It's like too much, too much brawling in the crowd. Um, yeah, just just too much of that. And they tried to do it a little bit different each time, but there was just too much of it. That's part part of why I think I liked the uh the the last few minutes of that lumberjack match probably more than anything else that happened in during the series is because it was just it just had a different vibe because it had other players out there and it kind of did the sports entertainment stuff with the interference and but it was all centered in the ring and you know it it led to some big near falls and had more personality so that's why i like that I, i i do think these are guys these are two guys that work better with each other when they're just in the ring having a match. Um I also don't think that just um I don't know, it didn't seem like Danielson was clicking as much in these matches. You know, I think homicide was actually the better of the two in a lot of these matches. I, I just don't think Danielson was feeling it. But you know, I maybe mean, maybe he feels differently. But I um that was the sense that I got.
0: And I think it goes again maybe to the theme of this episode, which is high expectations where like you know, you're saying Brian Danielson, it wasn't clicking, but I think you've at least to some level enjoyed every one of these matches. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, I
1: just, I, yeah, right. I mean, by his standards. Yes, of course.
0: Yeah. But I'm just saying it's, it's always weird where we keep saying stuff like, you know, oh, you know, they weren't quite up to their level and stuff, but yet the results are still fairly good. Like, like, it, like it seems like we're being harsher sometimes than I fear we really are. But at the same time, yeah, our expectations, particularly for a guy like Brian Danielson are sky high. And yeah, I don't think he hit you know, what I would expect from him in this series or, you know, in these matches, even they're just what these two are capable of against each other. And I forgot to mention one other, one other thing. One other thing I didn't like about the cage match was they make a point of saying early on that this is there's no cage escape. This is just pinfall submission only in the cage. They said these two. Uh, Gabe says something to the effect of um, Dragon Homicide told us that they weren't going to try escape. They want to win in the cage. And then later in the match, Homicide tries to escape the cage. Like he gets one leg over. That's when Danielson catches him. He just really and wanted. Of, he
1: just really wanted to brawl in the crowd.
0: Yeah, it's one of those spots where it's only—it doesn't make sense. It only happens so it can facilitate like homicide coming off the cage, and so that that was a bit of annoying. But overall, I I enjoyed this match. Um, after the match, homicide and Danielson sell for a long time as the refs and staff attend to them. They eventually get to their feet. The crowd chants, shake his hand to homicide. One fan sh- shouts, "You choke like the Yankees," which Danielson will steal within a minute. Um. Homicide actually does shake Danielson's hand and even hugs him, which I was like, oh, my God, and then immediately gives him the ace crusher. Homicide then has a tantrum at ringside. He guarantees this isn't over, that the Rottweilers will get him on the next show. Danielson then grabs the mic and says, you beat me twice in a row, but then you choke just like the Yankees. Danielson says they can continue this after he beats Austin Aries for the ring of honor world title the next night, because after he wins the first person he's going to give a title shot to is homicide. And this was another sign. I think that they have a lot of time to fill on this DVD because this post-match went on for like, I don't know, eight or nine minutes. It felt like it felt like, you know, on a different show, they might've edited out a bunch of this, but they left it all in on the show. And then we end the show with an ad for full impact pro. So again, a lot of time to fill just a quick ad for full impact pro and that is that is um the final showdown so matt before we uh we get our opinions on the show we have a review from pat McDeal you know, from the pro wrestling torch he did a review of the show and i thought it was interesting so i'm gonna really read this and it was always interesting especially to get the thoughts from the two major newsletters since they were pretty important to ring of honor and also because of uh as we've mentioned on our recent show uh, the Torch had really downgraded their Ring of Honor coverage from they were doing a lot of coverage to very little. So it was kind of rare to see something like Pat McNeil give a like a whole column devoted to a Ring of Honor show, not even one of their very biggest. So he wrote The Ring of Honor Challenge was the title. Pat McNeil writes about six weeks ago, ring of honor owner Gabe Sapolsky challenged wrestling fans to go out and get the Manhattan mayhem tape on DVD promising fans that ring of honors debut in Manhattan was the best video release in the promotions history. And if fans didn't like it, they would never have to pay attention to Gabe or ring of honor ever again. This gambit was designed to draw attention from people who weren't, who aren't ordering ring of honor shows. Only Ring of Honor management know how well it worked, but the move also afforded the regular Ring of Honor fans and wrestling writers the opportunity to lovingly nitpick the event. Judging by the response on the Torch website message boards, many Ring of Honor fans felt the show was not as good as the February 25th Dayton show. Ring of Honor's first show in Dayton since the second anniversary weekend took place on May 13th when the group returned for their final showdown event. The video and DVD versions of this event have been released. If this show isn't as good as Manhattan Mayhem, it is pretty darn close. There isn't a bad match on the card and only a couple weak spots overall. It is possible to nitpick about the show, sure. The first nitpick is with Ring of Honor's version of main event style, which involves a lot of guys dropping a lot of other guys on their heads and necks. Admittedly, this doesn't happen as often as it did a couple of years ago, but you have to figure that... All the high-impact suplexes and brainbusters aren't helping the long-term health of the wrestlers. The second concern with the Ring of Honor main event style is how the wrestlers choose which moves are protected and sold. For example, in Brian Danielson's main event cage match, the American Dragon performs an incredible diving headbutt from the top of the cage. It was an impressive sight. You couldn't help but remember how, several years ago, Chris Benoit performed the same feat on an episode of WCW Thunder and was the talk of the business for that weekend. Here in Ring of Honor, Homicide quickly shook off the effects of the devastating move and hit Danielson with a pile driver less than a minute later. Sure, the business must evolve, and old finishers must give way to new finishing moves, but it's a curious choice for a move to undersell. Not to mention the fact that Danielson and Homicide, two of the best workers in North America, could use a little work on their transitions. Having said that, there's plenty of good news for wrestling fans on this show. Alex Shelley and Roderick Strong turn in a hot opening match that plays off of their recent history with each other. It's been said before, but it's hard to believe that Colt Cabana and Nigel McGuinness haven't been contacted by WWE or TNA. When Cabana teams with Doug Williams against McGuinness and Chad Collier, the resulting contest is a treat for fans of the European wrestling style. Ebison, now Evitaro, does an incredible job of mugging for the camera before the Big Four corner survival match. It's rare that you see Samoa Joe in a comedy match, but he pulls it off. There's some sort of competition between Delirious and Ebison to see who can make Joe break character more, and you'd have to call it a a draw. The only uncompetitive match on the card featured Matt Striker against the massive Chicago Superstar, and it at least gave fans the chance to chant, Let's go, Jobber! Many Ring of Honor fans... Uh, are pushing for former WWE Cruiserweight Champion James Gibson to become the next Ring of Honor World Champion, perhaps perhaps as soon as this weekend. Gibson is a curiosity even by wrestling standards. He's an athletic cruiserweight fired from WWE for using steroids. He's a Confederate flag-toting, self-styled redneck, and one of the most popular baby faces in the Blue State Ring of Honor promotion. If you only know James Gibson from his work as Jamie Son in WCW and Jamie Noble in WWE, you might want to check out his w- his Ring of Honor title match with Austin Aries on this very same release. Ring of Honor sets the stage by having Gibson come to the ring with his trainer, teasing that this will be the night he captures the title belt. The announcers Dave Prezak and CM Punk do a good job of recapping Gibson's back injury sustained last month during a match with Roderick Strong. As it turns out, the back injury is a red herring. Ares takes Gibson out to the floor early in the contest and starts working over Gibson's left arm against the barricade, finishing off the arm slot by charging from one end of the ring and smashing his knee against Gibson's arm, which is wedged into the barricade. Um... Uh, that falls to uh, Gibson himself. Gibson continues to sell the arm for the remainder of the match. It isn't one of those sissy sell jobs you see in other promotions either. Gibson lets his left arm hang dead from his side and uses his right arm for punches, chops and strikes. Gibson remembers to grimace with pain. Each time he uses the left arm for anything, including a simple whip into the ropes. Of course that doesn't stop Gibson from hitting the top, going to the top rope to deliver a senton into the first row, but it does give Aries a target. Um, Blah blah blah. Go to the finish. Um, Gibson's determination to keep selling the arm, combined with Prazek and Punk's dramatic call, helps make a very good match, makes a very good match into an excellent experience. Ares pulls off his character well, pulling on the way out of the ring to shake hands with the unconscious Gibson, a move that's both correct and disrespectful at the same time. Um there's this one small glitch here with gibson's trainer danny ray accidentally raising gibson's arm for the crowd after the match and he raises the wrong arm but it's a small mistake and easily forgiven so long review there matt do you agree that this show was basically on the level of manhattan mayhem
1: no but i gotta say other than some of the outmoded language that he used um i pretty much agree with almost everything else pat mcneil said um i I have i was surprised actually by how many points i agreed with um Definitely agree, disagree with him about Manhattan Mayhem, but it seems like he and I are pretty close when it comes to the final showdown.
0: Yeah, and so I guess that should bring us, like, I thought this was a good show. I, I do not think it's on the level of Manhattan Mayhem, although I do think it had one great match on the show, but I, I think it's a, it's a fun show. There, you know, there's, a, there's probably three or four matches I've said disappointing, you know, when describing them, but yet I enjoyed all of those matches, and I would say there's the only match on the show I did not enjoy particularly, was a three-minute squash with Matt Stryker, which was not bad. It just was a pointless squash. And I would say everything else on the show is above average to good to I I enjoyed the main event more than you. And I I think it's another one of those shows where it really shows you the depth Ring of Honor had at this point where basically – Samoa Joe and CM Punk are kind of non-factors on the show like they're wrestling but Joe barely does anything it's a it's a comedy match that's second match on the show basically in reality and Punk is in one of the lesser matches on the show I would say in both excitement and just star value and it's still a show that does not that feels like fairly significant thanks to those top two matches you know and uh And, you know, they don't have Spanky. Low-key's not working the show. And it still feels like a a significant show. And, yeah, I enjoyed the show a fair bit. Yeah, I
1: thought it was quite good. I I also thought there was a great match on the show, just a different one from you. And I had fewer disappointments than you did. Um, And also, you know, that comedy match is a big selling point for a lot of people. You know, it's not as big for me as it is for some, but a lot of people really love that match. You know, it's like a very endearing match to a lot of people. My question for you is... Would you consider this match an A show? I mean, this show an A show or a B show? Because I feel like it's in this weird in between zone. Because it does feel like the smaller show of the weekend, but the matches on it have been built to. You know, it's not like there's these these like kind of one off things.
0: You know, you know what? What I was thinking of that too. It's funny you point that because you know what I what what I think makes it weird like that is it's like it's a B show undercard with an A show top two matches. Yeah. Like because, you know, Aries and, and Gibson, that was built up to on a different city's show. You know, they we're finally going to get to see this. This is a top tier world title match with a finish that was built up to with a draw. And, you know, they're getting a big steel cage match. That's the end of a five match feud. That's a big, you know, finish. And they treated it. They worked it like a big match but then if you look at the rest of the card punk's in this random tag title match with ace steel joe's in a comedy match and grant he's coming into this weekend hurt but you know even like the uh the cult um you know uh nigel feud new york got a singles match chicago tomorrow's gonna get a singles match this just gets a random tag match likewise doug williams they're getting the single match singles match tomorrow not today so there is a lot on the show that does feel more like a, a B show card but then you get those final two matches and you're like well that's a pretty big final two for Dayton or a lot of places
1: yeah i um but you know overall it's 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 the final showdown holds a weird a weird position in history because it's sandwiched sandwiched between two shows that are very beloved by the long time ROH audience you know so it's sort of like the forgotten show of May 2005 but you know really it's just part of a very good three show run you know yeah. and it, it'll be interesting to see how uh, nowhere to run stacks up which is obviously the more highly remembered of the two
0: yeah and that uh, brings us to uh where we'll be going next time so if you want to contact us through the years at gmail.com t h r o h for through um we also have our thread on the pro wrestling only dot com plugs forum if you want to contact us on Twitter I am at trevor dame matt is at mayor m g f um Jimmy Rave, I we've been to- told has a GoFundMe. You know, he if you've been following Jimmy Rave, he recently uh lost his lost an arm. People are trying to fundraise for him for a prosthetic. So uh, I don't have the link, but I'm sure if you just search for Jimmy Rave GoFundMe on Twitter, I believe it might be Anthony Henry, his former a wrestlers worked with him, who's running it. You can find that if you're interested in uh, donating to Jimmy Rave.
1: I think I actually um, if you if you go to his uh, just his Twitter page, I, I'm pretty sure he has Jimmy Rave's. I mean. He has information about it there.
0: And uh, that brings us to, like Matt mentioned, next time on the show, we will be covering Nowhere to Run, another big cage match that's sending a few, Jimmy Ray versus CM Punk with another huge spot there, plus – austin aries versus daniel Bryan Danielson. i almost said daniel Bryan. don't ever do that uh brian except on the last i'm talking about him in wwe but versus brian danielson and what will be brian danielson's final match in ring of honor for months and basically the end of his and aries trilogy for now they'll have more matches so i guess it's more than a trilogy plus homicide versus doug williams plus nigel mcginnis versus colt cabana again plus other stuff so that's a very big show like matt said very fondly remembered very exciting to go to that show So that's about it, and so until next time, have a good time, have a great time.